How's it going? None of these gimmicky openings, okay? okay. I just want to know, how are you? I want to look deep into your soul. <laughs> I want you to bear your your most honest truth to me. And I yeah. want you to tell me how you're doing. And for all the listeners. Yeah. I'm okay. Been heavy, heavy. Heavy snowfall? Heavy snowfall. We stuff. wish. Yeah. Oh, my God. I really thought I was going to wake up today to snow. You know when, like, you see the light from, like, the side of the curtains? It was so bright, like, white, that I really thought it was going to be because You thought, it snowed. like, there was two stories of snow <laughs> and there was just snow outside the window? Uh, it's been, like, years since I've even had any snow, but it's been even more years since there's been, like, snow you actually have to trudge through. I miss it, honestly. You have to tape tennis let's, rackets to the bottom of your shoes. Let's move to Canada. I think we'll be one of many yeah. following God Emperor Trump's oh God. victory. I was going to say, I feel like we need to have like a topic where we talk about Trump because of like the things that he's done since he actually since the inauguration. But actually, I'm still in that zone of like, I'm kind of sick of it because it's everywhere. Like, there's no point dribbling it out. We should just... Save up everything we have to say until we get to the assassination. (laughs) And then we can just let it all pour out. I like that you said assassination and not assassination attempt. Well, you know, Uh, I'm not advocating it, but I I am a strong believer if you're going to do something, uh, do it right. I was thinking the other day, why does no one assassinate presidents anymore? Like, because I I saw something about the Kennedys, because... Two of them were assassinated, yeah. right? So I was like, why does no... In my mind, I was like, why does no that one was assassinate... was 40 years ago, though. Yeah, but... And then I was like, well, presidents in other countries get assassinated yeah. still. But well, Amer- it's not like in people America, don't they try. Don't. Imagine how many yeah. assassination attempts there are that the Secret Service just quell. And we don't hear and about And you never hear about them. Because really they're never going to so? be like... This guy got within 10 feet of the president, but we took him down because that's going to set people into a panic. It's almost kind of amazing to me that presidents don't ride around in like a bulletproof Pope-mobile. Like I know they have like their limousines that are basically like tanks where it's like you'd need to shoot it with like an RPG yeah. to like, even Yeah, like, why do it. they ever go anywhere where there's big crowds yeah. is what I... Is what but when I... they're just walking around, it's like they need a Segway, you know, like one of those... Um, yeah. Or like a hoverboard, but it's got like a a bulletproof enclosure above it. It's like a one-person You're making reveal. me think of like, you know the thing in Beauty and the Beast that the flower's in? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm you're talking making, about. Yeah, you're making me think of one of those. It's like they're in like a, a display case at a museum, but yeah. they can like move it around. The president has got to be one with the people, okay? So they that's can true. Understand. It would distance them. It would make them yeah. seem like they're afraid of the people, honestly, which they are to a certain extent, but you can't show that. Honestly, though, I feel like if there is like an assassinate, a serious like, oh my God, that was close assassination attempt. That would happen. Trump, he would probably do something like that. Like I said to you the other day, I feel like he's going to try to break as many rules as he can. Like, just like him not releasing his tax information and um there was something else we're he's still using his old head. unsecured phone to tweet i saw <sighs> he's using like his and he and his like family are not staying in the white house yeah. like there's already rules and traditions that he's broken so i feel like he's gonna push because like i said to you these sort of like 
rules slash traditions. Like, who's going to say, no, you have to do it? Who's going to, like, take him to task? Or, like, how is he going to get into trouble? He's not going to get into trouble. He's only ever going to get into serious trouble if there's, like, an impeachment and it's something, like, ridiculously serious where it's like, no, he's being impeached. These little rules and traditions aren't going to... He knows that that's not going to happen. Yeah, he knows that's not going to happen just for not fucking... Using the right re- yeah, exactly. So he's gonna like push as many of those and make new ones and do loads of crazy shit. I can't believe like he's already done so much for my theory of like him maybe just being, you know, all talk yeah. and hoping that he wasn't gonna follow through. But anyway, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> and I feel like we. we but you think he's gonna be the first president who rolls around? You know those giant inflatable balls you get into, yeah. and then you roll down hills in them. Maybe well, that's what he no can walk day. around in a bullet, like a like a bulletproof, a bulletproof glass version of that, where he's on like a hamster wheel and he just walks everywhere inside. <laughs> it. it is crazy though when you think about. It's not that it's easy to assassinate a president, but like you said, they do go in amongst crowds sometimes. Yeah. And a guy has only... It's really easy to kill a human being. All you've got to do is yeah. shoot you don't even need or stab a gun. them somewhere You can somewhere get close enough to like stab them. It, yeah. it, when you think about it, it seems so crazy that that, does, that hasn't happened yeah. or that it doesn't happen because it's so simple to do. And it seems like it would be so impossible. There's so many crazy people out there yeah. and it's so easy for them to pass as non-crazy people when they keep their mouths shut. That the fact that one of them hasn't got close to Trump, or that one of them didn't get close to, to Obama, Obama yeah. which is when it seemed like it was really going to happen, and they just pull out a pistol and shoot him in the heart, like it's it's really miraculous that that didn't happen. I know he's got like <sighs> an army of bodyguards, and Trump has the same army of bodyguards. But, but there's loads of instances still. where like they're in with a crowd and they're shaking hands and they're yeah. meeting people. I know, obviously, to get into the building, they. For those types of events, they will bring in like metal detectors and they will search your bags and stuff. But people it's are not inventive, that hard to conceal things, especially honestly. when you're insane. They don't like strip search. You've got a lot so, of time on your hands. Yeah. yeah, that would be a strange scenario if Trump did get assassinated because the people who oppose him, even the ones who are super vehement about it and super anti-Trump, like just fervent foaming at the mouth they hate this guy they can't really be like yeah good screw that guy i hope he rots in hell like that's if he really did get assassinated that would seem like at the very least in poor taste but at the very most it would make you seem kind of i don't know monstrous sociopathic to be like i'm glad this guy's dead because yeah i don't want him to be assassinated yeah like and Put aside for the fact that I don't want him to be assassinated because he's a human being and I'm not, like, for that. It's a bold stance you just took there. You're against murder. Yeah. I also don't want Pence to be president. Yeah, that's true. So, because while Trump is bad, very, very bad in a lot of ways, I almost feel like Pence is even worse in in terms of, like, some things. And so I wouldn't want him to be president either. Um Unless it was like a double assassination. A double. Gotta, <laughs> but I'm not saying I want that either. you got to make sure the job's done properly. <laughs> and again, we can't stress enough Secret Service agents mm. that are listening to this. We're not advocating that. This is all just hypothetical navel-gazing. No, I don't think so. Uh, all our good. listeners are Secret Service agents. 
It's weird how all our listeners are coming from Langley, Virginia. Oh, wait, that's the CIA. Yeah, that's not where I the secret... I don't know the where the secret service like, is. Aren't they with Trump like, pretty much at all times? Yeah. Like, waiting... So- waiting. <laughs> waiting for the right moment to take him out from the inside. <laughs> He's taken out by one of the secret service. That would probably that would be, be incredible. the ultimate. That that's seems what like you'd the plot see, to a like, movie. Yeah, that's like some shit you'd see on like... Again. 24. Yeah. Oh, no. There's like a... What? Where was that going? There's like a shady guy. I've never seen 24. Have you? No, I haven't either. I've heard good things, but it just seems so overwrought and melodramatic. Anytime I see anything about it, it's always like, good God. I saw it being filmed The Republic is in danger. In London, which is pretty cool. They blew up a taxi cab or something. They like had that? they did that thing that that often people who aren't British do. They want to like pack it with British things. So there was like a black cab overturned and like exploding. They had a big red double decker bus go by in the background. There was like the red phone box and a red mailbox. Oh it was my all God. very like okay, we get it. It's You're in like... London, like. <laughs> I can't believe this explosion happened on Britain Street. Yeah. <laughs> where everything quintessentially British is kept. How dare yeah, they? Yeah, that was pretty fun. But that was pretty cool. I was just like, it was quite, quite near to where we lived. And I was just going to the post office. And I all of a sudden, I just see it being fit. And even though I didn't like see Kiefer Sutherland, he was there. So that's pretty cool. And you also said they didn't cordon off that much. No, they didn't. Of they, the area. they, you couldn't walk down that specific street, but it was just a very small side street. And then the main street that was the edge of it, that was actually right next to where the cab was, you could walk past. And they had like a series of extras um, that they got to keep running back and forth across the street. But then everyone else, like me, like just standing there watching. They were filming while we were standing there watching. So sometimes when you watch things on TV and you see, you kind of, and you pay attention to like the other people. Like sometimes when they're filming in places like New York, because it's harder to um, Can't shut close down off streets. Times yeah, exactly. Well, unless you're Tom fucking Cruise. Yeah, then you can do whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, but, um, but you can see them like staring right at the camera or like turning their head. And that was obviously one of those situations. Part of me was a little bit like I should watch the episode to see if you can see me because I do have my bright pink hair, but I never watched it. Maybe I should. You're just gawking. You're on they your did. phone checking Twitter. One website did use one of my photos actually that I posted about it, which was pretty cool. And that website was Kiefer Sutherland's <laughs> personal Twitter feed. No. It was like, check out this cool. You're making me sound like an asshole. photographer. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland knows who you are. Sure. Oh, he knows. Hey, I used to really like Kiefer Sutherland, like, for his, like, 80s movies, I guess. But, like, he's really not good in Designated Survivor. Yeah, that's... That... I almost want to say as well that, like, he, in a way, makes it worse than what it is because... If he wasn't in it, it would just be another one of those shows with, like, bad acting and, like... But you kind of, like, watch it because even though it's so bad, it's, like, good, it's so bad. But he's in it and you expect more from him. So when he's not giving you what you expect, it's, like, makes it worse. He... It seems pointless to say that he's the focal point because, obviously, he's the lead. But he has so much onstage Uh, presence and charisma compared to the other people in the (laughs) cast that it's just, like... 
when it's not a scene with him in, you're just like, ah, oh. it's it's the B list. Like the first episode was really good and like tense, and like he had some really good moments, and that's when we got really excited. Yeah. But by the time he's like officially president and like has to con- and it's continuously just like be like of the week, every episode, yeah, he has to continuously be like the people are counting on us. Yeah. Every ten minutes, there's like. But the people are kind of in his like Kiefer voice. It's like really, it's too much. So heavy and so overacted and so melodramatic. But that's the problem. We have to find new shows to watch because we keep going through them. Uh, And so it's like. You're also fussy though. Understandably. Because there's a lot of bad shows out there that you But there are also a lot of good shows and you just refuse to watch them. But then we get that churn where it's like we watch a few episodes of a new show and we move uh, on and it's like you never settle into like a new interesting show that you yeah. want to watch. Yeah, so anyway, never about that. Yeah. You know what I keep thinking about? What? It's like stuck in my mind's eye. What? The dead pigeon. Ah. <sighs> Shall we tell the sad tale? dead pigeon. The sad, tragic demise. This makes of me so sad. Periwinkle the pigeon. Yeah, so I went, I left the house, I don't know where I was going, the other day, and I actually didn't see it when I left the house, but when I came home... It was waiting for you, like I was a little walk- surprise. Yeah, I was walking up our little, like, pathway to our door, and I saw the end of a pigeon, like, the pigeon's butt and its feathers, and it looked like maybe he was, like, trying to get, like, a worm or something out of the little stones that are right next to our main door. But I quickly realised it wasn't moving and I was like, that can't be dead. Because I feel like usually when you see a dead bird, it's flattened because it's like on the side of the road or wherever and it's been flattened by a car. Or But this was like perfect, like a perfect pigeon. Almost like it had been taxidermy. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got to the door, also right next to the pigeon, to see that it was dead because its head was kind of twisted a little bit and it almost looked like it had no eye. Like there was a hole, but there was no like... This is horrendous. Eyeball, I guess. And I just couldn't not look at it. Like I stood there for probably a minute and a half just staring at it thinking, how did you get there? Because when like it's like a little pathway and there's like a high building next to it. So I don't know how it would have... I was trying to think, like, did you fly into the window above and fall? Or did you fall off the ledge and fall? But the way it was placed was so strange. Maybe it was down on the ground and it just, like, had a stroke or something. Like, I don't know, but I couldn't... Do pigeons have strokes? Yeah, I think animals have strokes. And you think this one did? Well, I don't know. You diagnosed it post-mortem? Yeah, I can't think of anything else that would have caused it to be so fully intact. But, like, its head was... But, yeah, so I stared at it for so long. And I was so, like, almost like, is this really happening? I don't know why it affected me this way. That I took a photo of it to show you. So, yeah, you decided to bring in the horror via means of electronic transfer... To it's my sad. eye sockets. Yeah. And you're like, hey, look at this interesting photo I just took outside the apartment building door. I didn't even give you a chance. I just said, I just sh- turned the phone around and went, look, dead pigeon. And I was like, <laughs> I wish I could go back five seconds and knock the phone out of your hand. <laughs> and then I left the apartment building 
not long after that. And I wanted to not look at it. You want to not look yeah. at it. But it's like I had to see it because it seemed so much worse in my mind. It was pretty bad in real life because it's a dead animal. Yeah. But it was like you said, it wasn't like its guts were spilled everywhere yeah. or it was like, like you said, flattened as if it was roadkill. It really looked like it had just landed in this weird little corner sleep. by the apartment building door and died. Maybe it died of old age. Ah, uh-huh, such PG. Seventy-two years young. Yeah, and then in my mind, I kept thinking maybe I should put on some like rubber gloves and like get like a bag and you know dispose of it because a I don't want to see it and b I don't want it to get to a point where like it's starting to decompose. Yeah, but also I said this to you: what if like you know the ne'er do wells of the building, like mess with it like kick it about and stuff who do you like... think lives in this building <laughs> psychopaths that are going to dissect a dead pigeon well i was sort of right because then when i left the house yesterday um the pigeon was had clearly been like kicked up so that it was in a different position i disagree that that was i think someone came along the only explanation didn't know whether it was dead or not and so and they kicked it kicked, in the head not like kicked it but like used their foot to Again, kind of like nudge it do you think that this apartment building is like <laughs> the halfway house for some insane asylum look i think it's definitely like a thing i i do agree with you that part of me wants to just put on like you know those rubber gloves that go like above your elbow why do they need to go above your elbow? Because I don't want any, I don't want even the tiniest chance of yeah. a speck of matter from this pigeon touching my bare skin. Yeah. I do kind of just want to go out. I want to just man up and just put them on yep. and go out and grab it, put it in a garbage bag and throw it in the communal dumpsters of the apartment building. Uh, but I also know. where else would we put it? With relative certainty that I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I know it Because, too. but it's only going to get worse. Worse, yeah. It's the we easiest sound really to do bad. it now. Do you think we sound really, like, really bad people? I don't see how it makes us bad people. We didn't kill the pigeon. Yeah. If we could go back and save it, I don't know how, CPR on its little pigeon heart. I also don't, like, I feel like so many people have a very, like, disliking for pigeons. Yeah. Especially if they live in a city like London or somewhere where pigeons are, like, fucking everywhere. Um, but I am not like that, like... So many times we would be out and some little fucking kid would be chasing the pigeons and throwing things at them. And I really, really hated it. Like, and the the parent or the guardian or whatever would just not be giving a fuck. Like, just letting their kid fucking throw rocks at the birds. And it really, really upset me. And then one time you just backhanded that toddler. (laughs) Which I thought was honestly overkill i do prefer animals over people not gonna yeah. lie yeah that whole attitude of like they're just rats with wings it's yeah. like do you know anything about anything i guarantee you that people say that know nothing about pigeons yeah. as animals and of course they can have like diseases and stuff but that's not a reason to yeah. just fucking kick them everyone them loves koalas but they've got chlamydia so it's like that's a random factoid <laughs> Every koala has chlamydia. Yeah. It's almost like a tongue twister. They're like carriers of it. Which makes me think that I don't know if that's like where chlamydia comes from. But doesn't that mean that like at some point a person got 
chlamydia from a koala? No. No? It doesn't mean that it originated with but it might. koalas. I don't like that I know one thing is a fact and then the other part of what I'm saying I don't know even is <laughs> like... But yeah, that's definitely a thing. Koalas carry chlamydia. Implications. So you don't get people saying fuck fucking stupid koalas. I don't want anyone to do them because they've got chlamydia. Like, but people are very much like that about pigeons, yeah. like disease. It is all just that very shallow human instinct of like, yeah. if an animal is cute, I think it's great and should be protected and looked after. And if an animal doesn't look a way that I think is yeah. cute. I don't mind hitting it with my car or throwing rocks at it or being glad that it's dead. Uh, the city pigeons as well, especially, can often have, like, deformities. Like, so many times we would see oh, pigeons man, with, yeah. like, deformed feet or only one feet, one foot, sorry. One feet. <laughs> one feet. One metric feet. Um, and so I feel like it's, it would be easy for some people just to be like, ew, like, yeah. you know, fuck that pigeon. But I feel like I almost never... Well, at least when we were in London, I almost never saw a pigeon with two intact normal feet. It was rare. It was almost always was rare, a weird scaly nub, which yeah. is yeah. Because gross we as people watched be. a lot, we were all often in areas where pigeons would just come and they'd be right next to you. And so it does seem a bit weird when we're like, do we just observe pigeons? But like we were often in positions where we were just like staring at pigeons. But also. Pigeons are everywhere. They are. Especially in the middle of a big city. And that's another thing that I hated. All those fucking spikes and everything so yeah. that the pigeons couldn't land on stuff. That was fucking horrible. It's also just so unsightly when every single surface uh. on a building is covered in spikes or like some kind of weird curvature uh. so they can't land. Like Because in those situations as well, they don't even like try to make it like a a thing they are just like these metal sticks that made me think of when they put like the anti-homeless yeah that's horrible as well yeah the thing is it has a knock-on effect i think if you let your kids chase pigeons and want to kick them and throw stuff about them it doesn't seem like a big deal because you can be like well it's just pigeons but you're Teaching them that it's okay to not be compassionate yeah. to things that they think are beneath them. But that also then leads to when you take that kid around to a friend's house and that friend's got a cat or a dog and then they grab chase, it by the tail. They, yeah, they chase it. it and they grab it by the tail and they're pulling on the tail like, ha, 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 look at the cat. But no, when that fucking cat claws your eye out, like, you know what I mean? Not yeah. that the kid deserves it's, it's more eye kind out. of a symbolic but, lesson to teach them to respect yeah. life, and that starts with saying you can't yeah. kick animals that you think are not worthy of your respect. I feel like there's got to be something fundamentally like wrong if you just like are okay with harming animals. Well, that's like the classic. Yeah. Telltale signifier of a Well, no, that's slightly different because that's you going out and like finding animals to actually like kind of dissect. Like, but yeah, and I see what you mean. Do you remember when there was that spate of cat murders in London? Was that when we were still there? That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, I think it might have been just after we left. I kept reading headlines where it's like the cat murderer strikes again. This one neighbourhood in uh, yeah. London. 
cats just kept disappearing <laughs> and I guess turning up dead. Really? That's got to be a strange thing yeah. to have I, around you. I'm going to just say it right now. If you are a person that allows your cat to go outdoors, I am judging you. <laughs> yeah. I am judging you. It's so easy for them to get killed. I feel like you're not being a responsible pet owner if you let your cat go outside. Because you could say whatever you want about what you think a cat is in terms of like they're natural predators and they need to go outside. They don't need to go outside. They don't need to go outdoors at all. And you can stop them from going outdoors. It's not really that inconvenient to keep your cat indoors. Like, it's not hard. And... Yeah, so I am kind of silently judging you. Not really silently anymore, but if you let your cat out. You can just let the cat go in the back garden. Well... Make sure you've got high enough fences and there's no, you know, holes in the fence. That, that works they can for get some through. cats because my mum lets her cats go in the garden, but... They have escaped. They have escaped to the next door's garden. And if my mum wasn't so kind of like... Well, she only lets them out when she's in the house so that she can, you know, every now and then kind of keep an eye on them or she's already in the garden herself. So if she, they jump over the fence, she's going to notice relatively straight away. Um, <clears throat> but I think that will probably only work with certain cats. Some cats will just find a way to escape and they will, like, run away. They won't just go to, like, next door's garden. Yeah, so it's not going to work with every cat. Like, if we let Rudy out... Say, when we used to have a garden at the house, um, I think if he had found a way out, remember, because we only took him out, we kept a very close eye on him and we let him out for like five minutes, decided it was a bad idea and then took him back in. But if we'd let him kind of like roam and he found a way out, I think he would have... Um, Vanished. He, Especially where we were... There weren't really that many areas where he could just kind of go and then come back. Like, I think once he'd got out onto the, the road, it, he would have just been gone. Um, yeah, so for me, it's just not really worth it. If you really want, like, your cats to have, like, grass and stuff, there are things that you can get. Um, you know, there's kind like of, like, artificial... indoor grass. Oh, like the little pots of yeah. grass they can munch on inside? Mm. Well, the other thing is... When we'd let him out in the garden, there was just so many ways he could be yeah. mischievous. Like he would start chasing bees and you the would freak mosques, out. Yeah. I I think I just obviously that could be a bad thing anyway, but I think the reason it freaked me out so much is because the first cat I ever had, George, he got stung once from chasing a bee or a wasp and his whole paw like ballooned up like to a ridiculous size and it was like a bowling thank ball <laughs> thankfully he wasn't allergic so he was fine but he rudy could yeah. be allergic so well, rudy would eat he would want to eat it if yeah he caught and killed a wasp he would probably eat it yeah he would and that's surely not good our cat's a little little torturer i've yeah. noticed one time he caught like a really giant moth that had come in the house and I like noticed he had something and I looked and he was like, it was half alive still, but like unable to fly away. <clears throat> and he was like torturing it and like he'd pick it up and carry it in his mouth, take it to another part of the house and 
drop it out and then like bat at it. And I'm like, no, yeah. this is not happening. It's so I took it dark. off him. I didn't even let him like eat it or anything. But do you think that's malice or do you think he just doesn't have the intellectual capacity to understand that he's causing pain to another Yeah, I don't animal. think he knows he's causing pain. I think he... Thinks, it moves and so he bats it. <clears throat> yeah, I almost think... Almost like it's a toy. Yeah, he, he thinks something has come into the house and he needs to, like... Neutralise Protect his, his home from it. He's like our Secret Service yeah. agent, always watching our back. But the thing is, he's... It's so strange because sometimes he'll be chasing the tiniest little fly you can ever imagine. So small, you can't but even see it. We can barely it. see it, yeah. And he'll do these incredible acrobatic feats and he has such precision when he he'll like leap in the air flipping backwards turning upside down doing a 360 like five feet in the air and he'll grab the the little gnat between his paws like it's so incredible how precise he is but then of and that so that makes him seem like this incredible like expert predator like just this immaculate hunter and then other times there'll be a fly buzzing around his head and he won't even notice it and we'll be like look rudy look get the fly get the fly and he'll just be glaring at us obliviously yeah it is really annoying especially when we can see it and we're like we want you to get it we can't get it it's too fast we want you to get it and you're just not paying any attention at all you'd think he'd be good for hunting spiders which we both don't like dealing with but he doesn't really i've even seen spiders run past him and sometimes he doesn't even notice like i said before but sometimes he does notice and doesn't even really do anything and it's very strange the annoying thing is is that you can't point a a cat won't know what you're doing They just look at your finger yeah whereas like a dog you can point and the dog will turn and it knows what you're pointing at um so you can't do that with a cat he has i have no like seen him kill spiders before and like i've seen him like chase spiders especially those kind of like daddy long legs type spiders spindly spiders as you call them um but yeah usually those really horrible like chubby bodied like black spiders with the thick legs like (laughs) he doesn't ever seem to like be able to get those ones yeah fuck i hate spiders it's made me feel really weird now talking about because i'm picturing them as i speak and i don't want to picture them do you think we could train him to be like a spider hunter? No. <laughs> Give him a tree every time he kills one. No, because he's so like dogs will just eat anything. <laughs> but cats, especially him, occasionally when we do get treats cuz it's not something we really give him a lot of. They're very hit and miss. Like, even if we get, like, a flavour we know he's had before and therefore likes, he will just be like, nah, don't want it. Like... He's very capricious in that way. Sometimes you hold out a handful of treats and he's, like, ravenous. Like, he's Mm. trying to bite your fingers off. He's so desperate (laughs) to get at the treats. And then, like, the next day you'll hold the same treats out to him and he'll come and sniff them and then he'll emphatically walk away. He's even took one in his mouth before and then just, like, dropped it. Like, and it's wet and all horrible on the floor. And he's like, nah, I don't want it. Yeah. How dare Mm. you try to bribe me, mama. He does really like cat milk, though. I I say cat milk as if it comes from cats, but it's actually goat's milk. Um, Do mama cats make milk for their babies? Yeah. How come you can't buy that for cats? Because you'd have to... Milk a cat? You'd have to just, like... 
you have cap I feel like I'm not gonna say the right words, but what do you have cows in a farm? A farm? No, but like Like pens. So dumb. I don't understand. Um just like you keep cows so that you can milk Oh, you'd have them. to have like a cat farm. You'd have to have a cat farm. And that's not But what if I you had that to be a, a pregnant cat as your pet and you just put the little suckers on the teats and collected the milk just to sell on the side as a side hustle if you will i don't think the cat would let you they'd think it was one of their little kittens oh little baby kittens Mm. on average how many cat gifts do you show me a day yeah how many times do you randomly just start making little noises of (laughs) admiration and then you slowly turn your phone around to me so I can see the gift from the beginning. Yeah, lots And you're of just times. looking at me expectantly like, isn't this the cutest thing in the world? The thing is, they really do give me so much joy. Like, just the perfect little kind of like cat doing whatever is just the cutest thing in the world, honestly. Cat gifts have become the opia of the people. Yeah. You know who said that? You. Me, just now. <laughs> Cats are definitely more popular than dogs now, I think. For sure. How would you even I'm sure there's like a that? thing. And why does it matter? Because dogs are dumb. <laughs> How dare you? I think dogs are more intelligent than cats. I love dogs. You can That's train dogs true. to do stuff. I don't love dogs. I love dogs in terms of like I love animals and don't want to ever see them harmed. But I'm terrified of dogs and... They scare me. Yeah. They're just very unpredictable. Understandably. Cats are too. Like, Rudy scratches me and bites me. But I feel but you're like, not scared of him. But I'm not scared of him. It's and just a, an inconvenience. And a dog can, like... Kill you. Take a face off. And savage you. Yeah. And so I don't... So it's a reasonable And fear. I have... I My fear of dogs is warranted. I was attacked, unprovoked by a dog when I was little. I remember it, every single step of it very clearly. And... So, yeah, so people out there are like, you know, there's nothing to be scared of, like, bullshit. Well, it's like when you go past someone with a dog on a leash, it's almost like you don't want to have to give them a wide berth because it's like you're implying that they have a crazy dangerous dog. Uh, but the thing is, you don't know. Yeah, like, you're do. just assuming that everyone trains their dog properly. They don't But know. some people really do have crazy ravenous dogs mm. that will bite your leg if you get too close mm. and that's apparently just okay but notice that if the dog the dog might not even be one of those stereotypical like crazy dogs but if the dog thinks you're going to do something to it like maybe it doesn't like out. the way you're walking or you're wearing red or something or whatever it is or the scent of your dog is on you and so it could be anything any reason why the dog wants to just like you've got a dead rabbit taped off. inside your trouser what is leg wrong with you? To antagonise it. So wrong with to you. entice it into attacking you. So you, you can you, cry wolf. You have a family dog that's very friendly. Yeah, my dog Rex is like insanely friendly yeah. and insanely playful and just an all-around sweetheart. I can actually say that I love Rex. He's lovely. And there were times when like you'd have to go out and I'd stay with him and like he'd come and lie on the bed with me and stuff and that was lovely but 
I don't 100% trust him just because I can't 100% trust the dog. Like when he gets like really excited and he jumps up so that his paws are like actually, because I'm only five foot one, if he jumps up at me, his paws will almost be like on my boobs. Yeah, he's standing That's on scary you. because he's like really big. Um, <clears throat> but I don't like automatically just think like he's going to bite me. I'm just kind of like wary. Um, whereas I'm not really like that with cats. Cats can be like savage, but not in the same way that dogs can. Yeah, there's a certain maybe just perceived unpredictability to like mm. savage dogs. Whereas if a cat is like grumpy and sometimes scratches new people that come into their house, it's kind of like you, it seems more comprehensible, like you can kind of deal with that. But if it's a dog that just has it in them to randomly bite yeah. the throat of a child there's something scary about that that's and horrible. i don't know if that's just from all the crazy stories in the media that you always see about some uh. little kid being killed by a random dog at the park but it does feel more likely that a dog would do something yeah crazy and inexplicable and violent there are obviously people as well that like train their dogs to be more vicious than yeah. they naturally are um which of course is <clears throat> not necessarily the common thing but it does happen yeah and people also neglect their pets and and so a, a pet that's been neglected you don't know how they're going to act this is an interesting question do dogs get dementia like I in their old age can. do their brains start to deteriorate i think they can you know so that's kind of an interesting thing to think about that you could just have throughout its whole life it was like the most placid most mm. friendly most loving dog but then it reaches its old age and the synapses are not firing correctly yeah. and it randomly just you know latches onto your arm with its teeth and that would be terribly sad that would be a strange predicament because it's like it's not a bad dog and it's not your fault and yeah, it would not just even be, really the dog's fault. Yeah, it's, it's just got, a sad like, situation, or, or any kind of illness that might make it. Because if it's taking medication for an illness as well, you don't know what that's doing to the dog. You know. Yeah. Sad. How do we get onto this sad? We're talking about Rudy. Topic. Yeah. Rudy, it can be savage sometimes. He can. Remember yeah. when we took him to the vets? Yeah. And. The vet was trying to get him out of the cat box and he was like the most <laughs> feisty, the most fiery, the when most fiery I've ever seen him. That like guttural like It's not even like a hiss. It's like, it's like a like a really strange <laughs> <laughs> sound that comes from like somewhere really deep within and he's just like <sighs> and you just know you can't go anywhere near him. That hiss is like get back, but when they make that kind of angry Pain yowl, sound, it's yeah. like I I'm telling you right yeah, now, yeah, it's yeah. going to be you or me <laughs> if you put your hands on me. And I promise you, human, I'm going to try my best to make sure it's you that goes. That was such a horrible trip because it's the furthest we'd ever had to travel, and we also had to travel on public transport. So he was traumatized from the moment we left the house. Like, think about what the tube must be like for an animal. It's best but there because was, he's never been outside. But there was no way else we could get him there. We couldn't, you know, it was, the vet was far away. A cab would have cost a lot of money. And um, 
so not only the traveling but then I knew I said to you we checked in like you say like I have an appointment at such and such and then they say take a seat so you expect to wait always at a vet as well you expect to wait a little bit because they're usually like behind but we had waited over an hour and a half and I said to you I turned to you and said they've forgotten about us there's something has happened and we've been skipped and um so I went up and it was like 15 minutes before they closed she said so she was like oh yeah sorry we have we've missed you out and I was like oh thanks so Rudy had been in this really busy vet with loads of other animals for an hour and a half on top of traveling so there was no it wasn't really a surprise that he was like really traumatized at this point and that's why I really struggled to take him to the vet because you've got to for a cat as, as well especially you've got to weigh if it's just like a cold where you could get like medicine you could just get medicine for them you have to just think about that versus the trauma of taking him into the vet obviously if it's like a serious problem you take him but if it's something that you can kind of remedy yourself like eye drops or something then i i would advise you do it because the woman when we tried to he tried to the vet tried to coax him out of the box um they were like oh we could usually when this happens we sedate like we sedate them a little bit and like get them out but you have to have like an hour and a half in advance notice because you have to obviously get the medicine to work and i was just like you fucking we've tell been us waiting now. for like, like we've an been hour and a half. Like, it was so frustrating but we couldn't take it out on the vet because it was really the receptionist's yeah. fault and so not only did he go for that trauma of like not knowing what was going on, all the loud sounds and smells and stuff, he then didn't get properly treated. He didn't even get seen yeah. by the vet. Yeah, that was just... That was But it was like, you will do anything for your cat. Like yeah. we would have sat there, if we'd known for sure that that's what it took yeah. to get him seen, we would have sat there for five hours because... Of course. You'll do anything for your pet. But when you do anything for your pet and then it still doesn't happen, it's yeah. like, ugh. I was very this angry that she, like, forgot. Like, that's your whole job. And then nope. <laughs> you just fucked up. That was the same vet that told us we needed to change his, yeah, so his food. I guess some good did come out of it. Because I didn't know. I mean... You had some inkling yeah. that it wasn't the best possible food to give him. But you get what you can afford and what you think is all right. Like, you know... But the naively, vet was like, I you can't trust believe you're what, giving him yeah, that brand. Like, naively, you trust what the package tells you because you shouldn't lie. Um, but, yeah, he was like, that's not ideal. You should try something that doesn't have such and such in. And so that's what we did. Um, Even though it's a lot harder to get than just the yeah, supermarket just the brands. supermarket stuff. But... Um, I just want to say that on several occasions I had to make a trek to specialty pet stores across central London. But once you know, you would do anything. Those sacks of specialty food. But that's, yeah, like I said, you're willing to do it because it's your pet and you love them and you want to do the right thing by them. I'd never, I, I just can't imagine ever being like, Oh, that pet food is a little bit more expensive or it's a little bit harder to get. He can just yeah. have the food that's not so good for him. It's like, 
and I imagine that instinct is amplified like tenfold when you have a child. You want to do yeah. anything you possibly can. You want to expend every iota of effort and every penny to make sure you do the best for them that you can. <clears throat> you got to think, would you eat it yourself? And if you wouldn't? I don't know if that's a good barometer because even the best cat food I don't think I'd want to eat. When it's like chicken and salmon. And no, you wouldn't want to eat it in terms of like you know it's not going to be enjoyable. But is it safe? In to terms eat? of the ingredients, yeah. Is it safe to eat? Is it just full of like fucking sawdust? Yeah, I do. I do think that is a key thing. If you wouldn't eat it yourself, in terms of like because there's like crazy shit in it to fill it out. But if the ingredients are fine, then I think that is something that you could go by. When you mentioned the kids thing as well, like. Obviously, there are things that, like, your child might need that you can't afford, but you somehow try to make it happen. And I think it's the same with your animals. There are obviously sometimes things that you can't afford for your your pets, but you try to make it work as best you can because it is your pet. It's not just like, oh, well, it's an animal. They can just fucking... They don't need what they need, but they do need what they need, you know? I keep having this image in my mind that it was Rudy that killed the pigeon which is impossible obviously because he's never been out what if there was like a little crack in the window and the pigeon landed on the windowsill and he reached his little paw out super stealthily and just slashed its jugular with his claws this is horrendous this is something of nightmares i just feel like he's got so many savage instincts Uh. that go unexpressed because when he tries to scratch us we you know Read him the right act. Yeah. Section one, subsection like, one, sub-subsection one, do not fucking scratch his cat. I feel like that makes it sound like we do things back to him, but no. we don't. I basically just, I just like, I'm like, no, because I don't really know what to do. And you have a more kind of like... Well, I like, kind of like shout to him and tell him to get back. And sometimes I'll shoo him away with a cushion to get him out of the yeah. room. Because I feel like he needs to know that it's not okay for him to bite us or scratch us, even when he does it. Like, sometimes he does it in a, not a playful way, but he's clearly not trying to hurt you. He's just wrapping his teeth around your hand because you're not stroking him. But that still hurts, and that sometimes can still draw blood. So it's important that he knows that that's not okay. It doesn't seem like he's gotten the message yet, but you got to keep trying. Yeah, there are definitely things that cats do where it's like, I'm not hurting you. Like, when you read about it, I feel like people, when they write these articles, they always call it a love bite. Cats like to love bite you. And it's like, okay, that's... That does sound a bit like Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, but they do these very, like, kind of, like, docile, like, just... Very lazy. uh, And it doesn't, like, feel like anything. It doesn't hurt. In fact, Rudy's bites hurt less than his scratches because his scratches can be really savage and they can make you bleed, but his bites don't really do anything. And I feel like he uses those to kind of, like, express himself. Which is kind of weird. I've also read, like, over and over how, like, cats don't really recognise punishment the way dogs do. And so if we were going to, like, try to enact some kind of, like, punishment to teach him, he wouldn't understand anyway because he's a cat and they don't kind of... Sorry, they don't kind of learn that way. So it's really just a case of, like, 
No, and then hoping he doesn't do it again. I think if you do it immediately after he does something, if you kind of shoo him out of the room or shout at him or spritz him with a little water bottle, I think he gets... These are very kind of intuitive forms of expressing to him that he did something you don't like and that you're responding, not aggressively in response, but you're kind of trying to show him that that's not going Mm. to be allowed that's not going to be tolerated yeah i i guess i kind of get on some level he knows like oh she doesn't like that but i feel like maybe the capability to learn that and kind of continuously know that because otherwise why would he keep doing it i think it's not so much a case of teaching him that you don't like it it's teaching him that not something bad will happen to him if he does it because that sounds too severe and sadistic but that he's going to be shooed off your lap and he's not going to get strokes and he's going to get spoken too harshly it's like if a cat went too close to a hot radiator and burned their paw they wouldn't then go back to the radiator and touch it again like i feel like they have that baseline of intelligence to know that i did this thing and it worked out badly for me I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. That's what I'm counting on when I shoo him away. I think there are just different levels of what he's willing to sacrifice. He doesn't want to get burnt by the radiator or by the oven, and so he doesn't go near it. But he knows he'll get shooed, and that's fine because he can just come back later. Those are different levels of, like, things that might happen if he does something. Well, not with me. With you... He can come back in 10 minutes and you'll start stroking him again. He can come back in one minute. Because you feel bad about being stern with him. But for me, it's like if he randomly just scratches my arm and draws blood, I'm not going to be friendly with him for the rest of the day because I want him to feel that he lost that affection, that he lost that capacity to come to me and get stroked and to get petted and to get looked after. I feel like I don't have the capability to, like, reject a loved one that way. Even if they've done something horrible, I can't kind of be like, no, like, you're completely shut out now. And so that's where that comes from. Like, I really just feel like... And that's also... That's telling of me. That's because I can't... I don't want them to like think of me as so I know that that's what it is I don't want to reject them because of how they then will feel about me I know that that's where it stems from but I still can't do it I can be mad at the person or the cat or whatever for doing something but I can't physically kind of reject them see I feel that to a certain extent I feel a little pang of kind of I don't know what it is. Like, it pulls on your heartstrings when he comes back in after he's been shouted at and shooed out of the room. And you can see that he's kind of clearly milling around, trying to gauge the mood and seeing whether he can come back (laughs) on you to get strokes again. I do feel bad when I have to, like, show him via my body language or kind of, like, shoo him away with my foot to say to him that he can't come back on me. I do kind of feel like, because I do love our little kitty cat and i do feel bad when he is sad but at the same time it just upsets me so much when he scratches me like i don't want to have scars because he randomly decided to claw my arm 
and I don't want to have puncture marks on my hand because he bit me because I wasn't stroking him enough or I was stroking him too much or I was stroking him in a place that he didn't like or whatever it is. So it's like I just have to kind of swallow that instinct towards always giving him what he wants because otherwise he's going to push me away because he's going to keep biting me or he's going to keep scratching me or he's going to keep doing something that upsets me and makes me not want to have him around yeah so it's like i'm kind of doing it for him it's like you have in those moments you are reminded like more than ever that this is an animal and actually you don't know what they're thinking and you don't you can't control them and i feel like in those moments i am always confused because it is like a jolt of like reality this is a cat and you don't know but also i have that confusion of like all i do is love you yeah. i treat you like right like there's nothing bad about how we treat the cat he gets as much love as he wants or as little love as he wants because he's a cat and he'll do what he wants he's fed and you know he's warm and and then he just decides to bite you or whatever for no reason and so in those moments it is kind of like really hurtful and confusing but you know we choose to keep them as pets selfishly i guess and we have to kind of i don't know how selfish i mean it is selfish in that you enjoy the company of the cat and you want to look after a cat and blah Uh. blah blah but at the same time if he wasn't kept as a pet and he'd still been born, what would happen to him? Yeah. He would be on the streets or he would be in a mean. shelter or he would, like... I guess I meant selfishly in terms of, like, he has no control over, like, what he gets to kind of, like... Like, he does. He didn't choose to come home with me. I chose him. Well, he did well, kind didn't of choose, choose to me. be born to your yeah, parents. Yeah, same, I guess. It's yeah. like you can't... If we don't have that freedom, then it... Yeah. The cat certainly isn't going to have it. I guess. I don't think it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way that fate works. Like, he became our pet. And now that he's our pet, we try to look after him the very yeah. best that we can. Because we do stroke him and we do try and give him the best food. And we do make sure he's always we got fresh water. Yeah. And he's got nice toys. And he's got little cubby holes to go and sleep in. And, like, he has a good life. Yeah, maybe that's why it's, like, hurtful when he, you know. But again, that's just him trying to express himself. Like, if we knew what he was thinking, it might be, you know, really surprising. Who knows? I feel like we've talked about this for way too long. But we are Uh, endlessly fascinated by our cat's behaviour. I sometimes, like... A real part of me does wonder if one day he's just going to (laughs) speak. hello samantha hello ryan (laughs) and i always wonder like think about what his voice would be like if he could speak he's so real sometimes that's the only word i can give it i know what you mean though i look at him and i'm like and he's like moving his head like a human or like looking at me with his really expressive eyes and and then he just like he'll look away or something or he'll look me up and down almost like a human. And I'm like, speak to me. Yeah. Like, tell me what you People want. that think that animals on the level of cats and dogs are not to some degree thinking creatures, that they 
are almost like robots that you kind of interact with. They surely have not ever had a cat or a dog yeah. as a pet because I've had a cat and I've had a dog as a pet. And it's so clear to you beyond even just your want of this to be true. It's so clear that they have a personality yeah. and that they think about things and that they have moods and they have desires and they have dislikes. Like you see it on their face. It's so strange because you can see their thought process sometimes. You can see them thinking about something and then you see them do the thing they decided. Or you can detect what type of mood he's in because he's scowling at you. Or because he comes onto you and his tail's up and he's all yeah. happy and he wants to be stroked. He has mood swings and he has a personality that develops over time as he gets to know you. Like he was quite cautious around me to begin with. Yeah. Not super, super cautious, but he was kind of like, this is a new person. And then a couple of years down the line, he warmed to me and he started to come to me all the time. And now he sleeps on my lap almost every day and he comes to me for strokes and he comes and sits on me yeah. when I'm asleep and all that jazz. It didn't even take years. I know in your mind, like when you think about the span of a relationship, it was very quickly in my mind. And I said this to you briefly the other day um, after a conversation I had with my mum that was similar. It's like he knew that you were a person that I had chosen to kind of like have in my home and he could like feel that level of affection that I had for you and that's why he warmed to you so quickly because he was like, oh, my mummy likes him or whatever, like, you know, so I like him. Like he he kind of like sensed that trust from me and then he kind of like it carried on through to him. Another thing is, beyond what, like what you said, beyond what you actually want to be true, I really do feel like if I'm like upset and I'll say like go sit on the bed or whatever, he'll come to me, and he's like when I've cried before, he's like nudged my face and stuff, and I feel like that's because he knows something's going on, even if he doesn't realize exactly. Yeah, exactly what it is. Just like if um. Say if we were having, like, an argument or he did discussion, he would, like, make, like, a chirpy sound and then kind of, like, go away. And it's like he can sense that mood and he knows he what's going on. Emotional yeah. energy, yeah. I've noticed that before. He is not super, super perceptive because he's not a human and he doesn't have a high intelligence so he can discern things in very fine detail. But like you said... He picks up yeah. on what the mood is in the room. And it is kind of freaky to see. Like, we always stop and sometimes say to each other, like, whoa, there's an animal sitting on our couch right yeah. now. And we say that what makes it bizarre is because he does clearly show intelligence and he is like a living being yeah. who is trying to interact with the world as best as he can and however he wants to in the moment it does become easy sometimes when you get complacent to treat them like a toy or treat them like a robot or something like that and not think that he is like a being with thoughts and emotions and moods and whatever it is but that is what he is and you have to treat him like that on the other side of that as well is, like, when I sometimes worry that, like, you know, I worry that, like, if he was in any kind of pain or, like, he wasn't feeling very well, 
but I wouldn't know. I don't think it's always the case that they show symptoms. Like, people are always like, yeah, but things would be different. Like, he would be eating less or drinking less or whatever. Um, but I worry sometimes that something might be going on and there's absolutely no outward symptoms. And I won't know until it's too late. Um, and it's not like, you you know, you can't just go to the vets and be like, you know, x-ray my cat, give my cat an MRI. I need to see... I need to see through my cat to see what's going on. but um, Put him in the mind-reading machine. Yeah, but sometimes I do want to do that because I'm worried because he can't just say, like, mommy, I'm, like, hurt or whatever. So you've just got to keep an eye, I guess, and just hope that you'll know. But you're not a veterinarian, so you don't yeah. know all these tiny... The thing is, I'm convinced that half the time vets don't know either themselves unless they give, like, an X-ray or draw blood. Like, a lot of times when Rudy's been to the vet, like, you think something's wrong and they barely look at him. And it's like, how do you know you don't know? Well, it's like going to any expert and seeking their opinion. To a certain extent, you have to just trust that yeah. their decision-making process and their store of knowledge is just not something you can emulate in your own mind. They're seeing things that you can't see. They're figuring out things that you can't figure out. They know things that you don't know. And if you're not going to take their opinion, you've got to have a good reason. It can't just be, well, I saw him flick his tail this one <laughs> way, so he must have cat cancer. But obviously with people... But obviously with people, you can say a certain amount of, like, what you feel, whereas cats are just like, don't touch me, like, I don't But then sometimes they can be like, don't touch me just because, for no good reason. Yeah, that's what I mean, like, don't touch me, I don't want to be touched by you, I don't want to be here. And so it's like, how does the vet know? I don't know. So, yeah, so (laughs) that's probably a good time to, like, get on with our topics. Yeah. We talked about this. <laughs> After talking about cats for 15 days, yeah. this was a marathon two-week yeah. part of the podcast. <laughs> okay, so yeah, what's the first topic that you have to share? Okay, so the first thing I have is something that I took from Reddit. I saw it in the Ask Reddit section. It's, um, Reddit's who live with their significant others. What changed the most when you moved in together? I thought this would be interesting to talk about because... Oh, yeah, I just thought it would be interesting. Um, obviously, I had... I'm slowly inching out of the room. <laughs> There's a Ryan-shaped hole in the door. <laughs> I had um, lived with someone before, um, but for you... It was my first time. It was time your first time. I also... When I first met you, I was also living on my own for the first time, which I think is also something that's interesting to talk about because... A lot of people talk about, you know, I I often see people say at some point in your life you should live alone. And it's like, for me, it was horrible. It was a very short amount of time. It was like three months, but it felt it was not good. I hated it. Well, I don't know if that's just because I'm someone who likes company, but it was really horrible i was scared like a lot of the time um so yeah so i thought this was a could be an interesting thing to talk about yeah i think it's an interesting topic i think more than just what's the biggest thing that changed just what it's like living with a partner yeah i think is a better 
focus for the conversation because there's so many things that even in these really little subtle ways change when you move in with a partner and a lot of people want to cast dispersions about that process of compromise but it doesn't have to be this negative thing where you're giving up so many different things that are important to you because you gain so much. You really do. I guess what I want to want to start with is, were there any things that you expected to be a certain way and then it wasn't? I just had no <clears throat> frame of reference, I would say. So I really didn't have expectations. I had fears. I was very trepidatious about it because you do catastrophize in your head. You do worry about like, if I move in with this person, are they going to be different when I'm around them 24 seven? Or is there going to be problems because we have this small incompatibility? You do tend to just accumulate those perhaps irrational fears in your head. I didn't really have any framework of expectation about like, it's going to be like this. It was more kind of, wondering how it could work what was the best way to make it work although that's all in a way pointless because until you're in the situation there's so much about it you can't foresee and you can't prepare yourself for a lot of it really is you have to hit the ground running and you have to adapt on the fly and you have to find a way to make it work as soon as you're living together what do you think the hardest thing was? I bet you know what I'm going to say. Yeah, I do know. To it's quite con- obvious. Are you going to say it? No, I want you to say it. You're going to say it? You're going to spill my, <laughs> my deepest secrets on the podcast <laughs> for all 15 of our listeners? Yeah. In fact, it's just the same guy listening to it 15 times. No, you're shaming him. Am I? I don't know. I just felt like That's that his fetish. Re-listening to the same podcast 15 times. <laughs> He learns every nuance of our mouth noise. That's weird. At that one make... fifteen, she's going to make a little spluttery <laughs> splut splut with her mouth. No, no. At fifteen forty-two, Ryan's going to say like. <laughs> At forty-two fifteen, she's going to cough again. I don't know where I'm going with this. Yeah, the hardest part was that I'm a more solitary person, and you're a more together person yeah i don't like being alone at all that was not a very eloquent way of putting it but (laughs) i'm trying to say it in the plainest way possible because i don't want to dance around it before you go on to talk about it i want to say it's not just that i prefer to be with people i don't like to be alone at all i'm not someone who like needs space or needs alone time it's not like a ratio for you it's like that I need it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was a learning process for me because I am someone who, because I grew up kind of not by myself because I lived with my sister and my mom, but I had a small box room and I often spent almost all my time there when I wasn't at school. You kind of develop a self-sufficiency and an independence and a need for alone time that I think is very, very difficult to unlearn. Yeah. I would spend most of my time 
playing video games alone or going on my computer alone or writing alone. But the common factor was always that I had to figure out a way to make it enjoyable, even though I was by myself. And once you gain that tendency, that inclination towards these things are most fun when I can control everything because I'm by myself and I don't have to worry about entertaining another person or worrying about what they want to do. When you move in with someone, you have to modify that. And that's difficult. Yeah, I don't think I realised. Um, I obviously always knew that I was someone who preferred um, to be with people. But because I'd never been in a relationship where I'd never really been in, like, I guess you could say healthy relationship, although I hate that term, because I'd only really experienced kind of, like, um, an unhappy environment or, like, hostile environment or, you know, those types of relationships where you just kind of exist together but you don't spend time together? That's what I'd experienced before. And so... So, I mean, straight away, our relationship was different because we knew that we liked spending time, like, that amount of time to, together. And um, we didn't move in with each other because it was, like, a necessity or it made sense. We moved in with each other because when we spent time with each other, when one of us had to leave to go home, it became harder and harder to leave because we enjoyed being with each other so much. Um. And so what was hard for me, oppositely to you, was the new that new kind of addition of, wow, he really wants to spend time with me, was coupled with he also consciously wants to spend time alone. And I'd never had these clear lines before. I'd only ever had, this person doesn't really like me very much but I'm trying to make it work as best I can. Whereas now I had these really clear lines of like how it was going to be, I guess. And it's not that like, I don't like to see it as compromise. I like, I don't like to say I had to compromise and you had to compromise. I like to see it as we tried, we had to learn the other person in terms of what they wanted, how they wanted, and what I felt comfortable kind of like adapting to, if you will. Yeah, I completely agree. Compromise has become this dirty word when yeah. it comes to relationships. I think because it seems so scary from the outside and it seems so like it's something you have to fight against, mm. you have to minimize. I think it's true that too much compromise can make people resent each other and that's why if you find yourself in a situation where you're only like say 40 50 percent compatible with someone else if you move in with them you'll then have to compromise on 50 percent of things and yeah. then it feels like this huge onerous burden of i have to give up this and i have to change that and i have to modify this whereas for someone like you and me where we're like 85 90 95 percent compatible yeah. already you're compromising, and I use that word in, in scarecrows because, it, like you said, it really is just figuring out how to make the puzzle pieces fit together yeah. even better. You're compromising such a small percent of the time. You're compromising about such a small amount of things that 
it doesn't feel so strenuous and it doesn't feel so costly and it doesn't feel like you're giving up a part of yourself or you're changing who you are. It just feels like you're trying to optimize the way that you live with this person, the way that you interact, the way that you can both get what you want the most amount of time. So it's kind of foreign to me when you know people in relationships or you observe relationships where um, the couple don't have anything in common. And so their only kind of time spent together is like purposefully kind of like laid out time. Like we're going to go on a date night or we're going to have our meal together or um, whatever it is. But the rest of their time is not really spent together. They either kind of like exist in the same space, like what I was talking about before, or they're constantly fighting against, oh, he's always doing this or she's never doing that or whatever. Those types of relationships, um, that's kind of like foreign to me in terms of like, if you are kind of like happy, why would you be happy with that scenario? Whereas like I felt like with us, it was very different. It was like, no. Like I remember something you said to me once. We hadn't moved in together yet, but I remember I'd stayed at your house like quite a bunch and you went into the kitchen to like fix us some food or something and you came back in and you were like, I just wanted to say that while I was in the kitchen, I realised that I couldn't wait to get back into this room so that I could be with you. And I was like, whoa. Like, no one had ever expressed that kind of communication or, like, feeling towards me before. Like, where they really just want to be with you because they enjoy you. Not just, like, physically. Like, but they, like, want to talk to you. They want to learn more about you. They want to, you know... And that was just amazing. And I feel like we still feel like that now. Yeah, of course. And, yeah. I don't know. You're having a moment. Yeah, I'm having a moment. Wow. Like, I, I'm con- constantly and consciously just so, like, happy and, like, amazed at, like, what we have. Because we are so communicative and we are so compatible. But yeah, let's not get off track. Um, <laughs> <laughs> After you gush for yeah. 15 minutes about how incredible our relationship yeah. is, the listener's like, good for you. <laughs> They're like, I'm out, fuck this shit. Um, so was there anything, while we're on that kind of like high note of like things being amazing, like what was do you think was surprising in a good way? There was lots of things. There was a whole, I'm not sure what the word is, I guess domain of interaction that I'd never really experimented with before where it's like you're always together Mm. even when you're not actually doing something together. And because I'd had no experience with that, I didn't know how good it could be to spend all of your time with someone that you really love and that you really enjoy spending your time with. And that sounds obvious and that sounds kind of trite, but for example, when we're both doing our own thing on the couch, like I'm playing video games and listening to podcasts and you're watching a TV show on your iPad, say, we're not doing something together because we're not interacting. We're not talking to each other. 
we're both doing our own separate thing and we're in a way in our own separate world but in reality you're not you are together like we'll occasionally bump feet and kind of smile at each other Mm. or or do cute little things with our hands or you'll write a note to me or you'll text me and say you're cute and we'll both smile there's all these little ways that you're it's like there's always a tether between you and that heightens things even when you're doing your own thing so even when i'm playing video games and i'm listening to stuff it's made better by the fact that i'm with you in a kind of passive larger sense (laughs) it's not like i'm having alone time and it's like great i get to be away from her it's like i get to be with her in this kind of difficult to describe way it's like we're still together but we're doing our own thing yeah and i think i never could have expected that you could have alone time together if you see what i mean and that would make what you were doing during your alone time even more enjoyable and you just feel better because you're in the other person's presence that's something which i could never have anticipated and i was quite surprised when it turned out that way because like you said in dysfunctional relationships in unhealthy relationships that's not how it is it's like i want to get away from this person for as much time as possible and i just put on a brave face when we're together and i and i fix a false smile on my face because i'm just trying to get through this whereas with us it's like we find a way to make everything better by being together again as kind of hallmark card as that sounds i was gonna say that i think that kind of like being alone together thing was for different reasons each of our like hardest and like best thing that we had to kind of learn because you were coming from it of a place where you enjoyed your alone time and you might have thought to yourself I'm going to need to fight for my alone time by moving in with someone and I came from it from a place of I mean I came at it from a place of no I don't want to just exist together like I did before but what happened was is I started to see and benefit from that oh we're going to do separate tasks right now but we're still going to be in the same room we're going to be sitting next to each other or we're going to be lying on the bed together, but we're doing different things. Whereas before that was like, this person's only next to me because they have to be because we live together. This person doesn't really like me or choose to spend time with me, but they have to because we live together. Whereas like this time it was like, no, I am consciously choosing to like be here in this room with you but do something separate and I feel great about it because you're right there and I can interact with you whenever I want and it's a choice and I think that that's something we each had to learn but again from different places um I remember when we first moved in together it was just and I feel it now like I'm I I felt it just the other day actually like I couldn't wait till, like, night came so that we could sleep together. But I also couldn't wait to wake up because then we would be together. 
and I still feel it now like and it's amazing that that feeling can last that long and still kind of be as exciting and as nice as it once was when we first met um yeah do you ever think about how crazy and probable it seems that we chanced upon each other at all yeah it's very strange as well especially because i mean you could also enter into that that we're different ages as well so it's almost like less of a chance that you'll meet that person because you're in like we're in like different age brackets and we also lived in different cities yeah like you are younger than 25 and I am in my 30s and so we are actually in different sections of like you know when you have to tick a box and yeah we lived in different cities not even the city next to each other but like a couple of cities away um it is pretty amazing so there was a lot against us in terms of yeah the likelihood of us finding one another and that's what makes it so strange and so wondrous in a way because I think 99% of people have to go through those bad experiences of living with each other. And I know, obviously, you went through one. I guess I'm just saying I was so lucky. Yeah. Not to rub it in or anything. No, yeah. To everyone out there. You are. <laughs> but I think there was a tiny voice in the back of my head that was saying, that was kind of counselling me to be cautious and to be sceptical because, hey what's the likelihood that you're going to get it right the first time? It's probably Mm. not going to work out with her because it's the first time you've lived with someone. And so I think there was a tiny part of me that was always looking for the cracks to appear. It was always looking for the reason why, yes, this wasn't going to work out because this was the first time I was living with someone. And when that didn't happen, when we were so insanely compatible and so in sync from almost the get-go... And especially from when we started living together onwards, there was a kind of surprise that took a while to die down Mm. where I just was in amazement that everything was going so well. And it's kind of like the analogy I always use, which is when Wile E. Coyote runs off the cliff in the Roadrunner cartoons and he keeps on going and going and going and he's running on thin air. But as soon as he looks down and realizes that he's doing the impossible, he plummets back to earth yeah. because he's seen that he's doing something he can't be doing. And it almost felt like that where I just wanted to keep going and keep going and keep going and not look down or not look back and not figure out how this was working or why this was working or what we were both doing to make it work. I was just so in awe of the fact that it was working that I wanted to just put those blinders on and enjoy it because like I said there was a tiny part of me that was saying this is going to be finite this Mm. is going to come off the rails eventually and so you should just enjoy it while it lasts but that's obviously not what happened the train did stay on the rails onwards and onwards and onwards and onwards even when I started looking at why that was the case I think I learned a lot in terms of I obviously learned things to go forward with or without from my last relationship like I wanted things to never be a certain way again or I wanted things to be a certain way because they weren't that way before so I took things from that like tools and like things I had learned 
and I really wanted to kind of like consciously make sure things didn't just be like fucking horrible this time and obviously straight away I knew that wasn't the case because I knew I was with someone communicative and appreciative and caring and nice and just all those other things but also I also learned a lot in terms of like trying to be completely open and communicative while we were learning like when we first moved in together there were things they weren't necessarily big deals but they were things that like I knew I had to really try to learn and like adapt to my necromancy (laughs) (laughs) things discovered that I was a warlock yeah things that were just like really like matter of fact and like there's no kind of I don't. I hate to use the word compromise, but like there isn't really any compromise. You just kind it's of just have how to, the other person is. how the other person is, and and unless you want to actually say, I want you to change, um, it's you that has to find a way to adapt. To yeah, it. and I think one thing that you everyone should kind of try to learn and accept is that just because a person doesn't want to do want something in terms of like you like want something from you want something with you it's not about you it's about them um and that's something that I think you really need to learn like if you feel rejected or not wanted in any way like and when I say this I mean in terms of like when we first moved in together and there were those times where you were consciously like I want to do things on my own I need space or whatever while we were learning each other, I had to like really consciously, like with effort, have to tell myself, this doesn't mean he doesn't want to be with you. Don't take it as that kind of like hard rejection feeling. It just means he wants to be with himself. It doesn't mean anything else. And I think as soon as you can learn that and like accept that and like really try to like, use that as you move through the days it it just becomes like easier to kind of like be with that person and just everything not feel shit and that was something I really had to learn and I'm glad I did because what then ends up happening if you're with the right person is things fall into that place of the way we are now where we do do things alone together and we do we know that when we spend time with each other we are consciously saying we want to spend time with each other we're not just with each other because we exist together in the same space or because we have to and I know that we keep coming back to this but I think that's a really like important thing that and one of the hard things that we each had to kind of like learn as we went along is that if you if you can learn it, you it will just fall into the right place. And if it doesn't fall into the right place, then maybe you're not compatible with that person. And I think that compatibility is like really key. Yeah, that's the difficult truth that I think a lot of couples that aren't, and this is a strange phrase to use, and I don't mean it in the fatalistic sense that it might imply, but couples that aren't meant to be with each other, not in terms of it's not your soulmate, 
but just in terms of you're not compatible enough. Yeah. There's not enough overlap between your likes and your dislikes and your tendencies and your moods and your mm. ways of viewing the world. I think what becomes clear to you instantly and it becomes very emphatically clear to you is that living together with someone is the ultimate stress test of your relationship especially at the beginning when everything is so new and all the challenges loom so large even though they aren't really as big as they seem if you're not in sync with that other person to a very high degree if you don't have that kind of simpatico nature it's not going to work out i don't think and obviously and obviously i completely concede that i'm speaking from a place of extremely limited experience because i've only had the one experience and it's turned out basically perfectly as far as i can tell but i can imagine the counterfactual i can imagine what it'd be like if we weren't so closely aligned in terms of how we are and how we want to be and i think it lays things bare because when you're dating or when you're together and you only see each other a few times a week for a couple of hours here and there, you can pretend to be someone else to a certain extent. And obviously you shouldn't, and that's a bad thing. But I think to a certain extent, everyone slightly modifies how they are in mm. order to impress the other person or in order to seem more amicable or compatible or whatever it is. And you can't do that when you're around someone else for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, years on end. It just, there's no way to continue erecting that pretense day after day after day. Yeah. The other person is going to see you at your most honest, at your most vulnerable. They're going to see you exactly as you are. And if they don't like what they see, it's just not going to be able to work out. And if they do like what they see, then it makes the bond even yeah. stronger because they've seen exactly who you are and you've seen exactly who they are and you still feel that love so strongly. There are certain things as well, talking about like things falling away and not being able to hold up this pretense. There are certain things that you, like as a person, like will do or have to do or there are certain ways that you will be and there's no kind of... I feel pe people in those incompatible relationships still try to, like, hide away from or um, not let that other person see. Just simple things like... I find it strange when people mention, like, um, not really being naked in front of their partner. Like, they're really only naked if they have sex or... Um, but they're, ne they're not, like, naked, like, when they get changed or they don't ever just be naked in the There's house. There's still that boundary for some reason. Yeah, and it, that's really, really foreign to me. Like, things like insecurities and stuff, put that aside a second. Like, you're living with this person and you're sharing everything you have with this person. Like, it's really strange to me that you can't then just, like, take your clothes off like it's very i love to be naked especially when it's like the hot months i take off my clothes all the time and if i didn't feel like i could do that then i i would know something was wrong 
and I would know that it's not compatible. Um, so yeah, so things do kind of like fall away and force you to kind of like be or not be the person that you really are and then you know whether it's, you know, compatible or not. Um, yeah, it's kind of, there's a lot of those little canaries in the coal mine which you have to really pay attention to because it signifies something much bigger than it seems. The nakedness is a good example. If you can't be naked in front of each other, if you don't eventually reach that point of comfortableness and that sense of security and that sense of I'm extremely comfortable and I feel safe around this person, safe from judgment, safe from any kind of negative thoughts on their part. If you don't reach that point, does say something it's not necessarily a deal breaker it's not necessarily the fatal flaw but you have to pay attention to those things because they tell you about your relationship even though they seem like kind of trivial things at the time and I think the interesting thing is I didn't have any long-term relationships before you the longest relationship I think was like a year Mm. maybe less and those were obviously teenage relationships, so in a way they don't even count. They do. They do, but they're not adult relationships. Yeah. It's almost like two different orders of magnitude. But So it seems like I should have came in extremely naive and I should have had to stumble so much and figure out things, basically trial and error. But I had come away from those few teenage relationships with a couple of lessons that had been instilled into me with just ferocious permanence. Okay. And one of those was honesty. Obviously, when you're a teenager, a dumb teenager, which is often (laughs) the case and was probably the case in, in my particular instance, you aren't 100% truthful in relationships. And that's to pull it mildly. Yeah. You do have so many insecurities and so many worries about if I do this, will they think this of me? If I act this way, will it mean that to them? That you do in so many different ways find yourself modifying how you are around the other person, modifying your behavior, modifying the way you talk to them, modifying the things you say about yourself. And that seems okay then because you don't have any means of comparison until you've been in a healthy open honest relationship you don't understand that there are different types of relationship than just i always try to be this perfect idealized version of myself around the other person because i'm scared to death that if i show them who i really am they're going to reject me they're going to say that's not the person that I wanted Mm. to be with. That's not the person who won me over in a romantic sense. And so having one of those relationships when I was a teenager, before we ever met, it really, really, really taught me that honesty is the most important thing. And again, that sounds like something written in a sappy film or on a greetings card. But it is also profound when you understand its full significance via your lived experience because there's a certain defensiveness, there's a certain uncertainness that you have 
when you haven't yet shown the other person exactly exactly who you are you there's a tiny part of yourself that always feels like it must be on guard it must continue to maintain this disguise this other version of yourself that you put in front of this person and you never quite feel like you can relax and just be who you are and just let your natural behavior come through and that's not a good feeling it's not the worst thing in the world you can get through it and I did and a lot of crappy teenage relationships persist because you can kind of swallow the uncomfortableness of that but when you see how it can be otherwise when you can be completely yourself around someone else and you can just enjoy that feeling of there's no wrong move here this isn't a game of chess where I can make some blunder that ends the game and I get laughed out of the room it's you do whatever you do because that's the natural thing for you to do and that's okay the other person just accepts that and sees that's who you are and you don't have to worry about making some misstep saying something wrong doing something that makes you seem a way you don't want to seem and yeah I think you just can't underestimate the value of that honest playing field I agree and I think there are different levels of honesty as well and different levels of honesty that you don't might not experience until you have kind of either gotten to like a certain level with that person in terms of a relationship but also until you then live with them day in and day out there's a certain level of honesty that you reach when you get to that point and for me my type the type of person that I am I can't like hold things in like if like we've demonstrated that we go on reddit a lot and like I sometimes read like the threads in like our relationships and it's always like people saying there's an issue in their their relationship they don't know what to do about it and they never just talk to the other person about it now you are the first person I think of when in in any in any scenario like if there's something wrong you're the person I want I'm going to talk to about it because you're the person it involves like there's never an instinct inside me where it's like something's going on and I don't know or I'm worried about something and I'll just like run to someone else and talk to them no I'm gonna talk to you like my first reaction isn't even to think what shall I do my first reaction is to just open my mouth and say it and so I couldn't ever be that person. Like, I always had to come into this from an honest place. And also, that in that also, like, means I expect that honesty because if I'm doing all that kind of, like, I think it and so I say it or I feel it and so I say it, the relationship's not going to work if, if my side is like that and your side isn't. And so... That's another way you can be compatible and not compatible with someone. If you're with someone who never talks to you, who doesn't speak about these things, you'll never work things out, you'll never, like, know if something's wrong, um, then I... Yeah, I just it's just really foreign to me and, like, I don't know how it kind of can work day in, day out. 
I guess things just get like pushed down. People find a way to make it work. Yeah, and that's how you end up kind of resenting each other. And that's also how you end up fighting about stupid things. Um, It's like something we always talk about where the core foundation is that we are best friends. Yeah. First and foremost. And that seems like a strange thing to say, but you come to realize that the other person has to be your best friend and your lover and your confidant and someone you admire and someone that you can trust Mm. and someone that knows more than you about certain things. They have to be this whole spectrum of different things in order for you to have that sense of they are my person. Yeah. They're my person for everything. They are, they do kind of become like your everything. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I think when you see, so you see, like, you know, you see people talk about, like, you shouldn't, like, need someone or um, one person can't be everything. And that's true in some cases or for people feel comfortable having that be a fact for them. But for me... I am totally, like, okay and not ashamed that I need a person and you're that person. I need you and that's fine. And But it's okay to need you because I want you. I don't just need you in terms of, like, I don't want to be alone. Like, I can need you that way because I want you that way. And also, going back to the best friends thing, you can be everything for me I can talk like I talk to you like you're my best friend and I feel like we are kind of like greater lovers because of that whether you're like friends first or lovers first or whatever I guess you could say we were like lovers first but I guess I feel like through that you become kind of like you have like a deep friendship and why wouldn't you have like a deep friendship with someone who you are like having sex with that to me kind of goes hand in hand whereas I guess some people it's like they're together because they have a sexual relationship but they're not kind of compatible in those other areas um whereas I like enjoy my time with you in all those other areas other than sex as well as sex that makes any sense at all Yeah, it's difficult in the sense that it's scary and it's daunting to put that much faith and that much trust and to become so reliant on that other person that there's a part of you that is seeking to protect yourself from any future harm, which says to you, don't make this person your everything. Just compartmentalize all your relationships in your life so that even if your romantic partner leaves, you still have a best friend elsewhere. Because there's some self-preservation instinct within you, which it says, don't take this risk. Don't put yourself in this situation of extreme vulnerability where this other person becomes your everything. And if they eventually turn on you or they leave or the relationship just withers and dies, you're going to be stranded on this island of hopelessness where you're going to have nothing. And it's very difficult to overcome that with the hope that that's not going to happen in this instance. This person is going to be my person. And 
I don't have to worry about them betraying me or disappointing me or just disappearing from my life. I can pour all my faith into them and have this codependent relationship. And that's a word that has a lot of negative connotations, but it really doesn't. It just means that <clears throat> you become so synced up that you do things for each other. And that's an important part of both of your lives. But it does feel so comfortable and so nice and so safe when you can put yourself in that situation where you don't have to worry about the floor suddenly falling out beneath your feet, where you do feel like you can have infinite confidence that this person isn't going to let you down in that way and that your faith in them will be rewarded. And I think that feeling of feeling really kind of like that trust and that feeling you have in that person and in your relationship and because of that person and because of the relationship you have is really important because it can make you feel just like on top of the world about every other part of your life because you have this kind of like foundation in terms of you've chosen to spend your life with someone and now the rest is kind of just a bonus and that's how I look at it because for me that's the meaning of life finding someone to share life with um for a lot of people the meaning of life is like career like their career or to have a family i.e kids but I feel like so many people end up kind of doing it in like almost a backwards way they have the kids but they don't have the strong foundation of what a relationship really truly should be um because they are incompatible and they don't enjoy spending time with each other but they've got kids and so you know and so I do think it's really like important to find that and have that feeling um and like I said like that really is the meaning of life for me like finding that person it does just make everything better yeah and that's a difficult thing to explain to someone who's not experienced it. Yeah. I think to a certain extent, it is one of those things you can't describe to someone who hasn't experienced it. Yeah. And that almost makes it seem like this, you know, spiritual woo-woo that other people just can't understand because they don't have the same mystical insight you have. Yeah. But it's nothing to do with that. It's just a very singular experience that there's not really a parallel to in other parts of your life like your connection to your parents or your connection to your platonic best friends or your connection to colleagues or your connection to your pets there's no other connection to someone else that is the same in any way yeah. or is comparable in any way to the depth and the profoundness of the connection you feel to your paramour. Uh -huh. Do you like that reference to your yeah. favourite band? Hey, it's not my favourite band. I do you love, love paramour. But yeah, <clears throat> I agree. Like, it, to me, it is the most important. Like, when I think of, like, you're the person I know I'll go to for advice or you're the person I know has already taught me so much and you inspire me and you know there are just so many layers and that's what it is supposed to be it's not supposed to be limiting um 
it, there's not supposed to be limits on it where it's like I can't get this from you because you're just this person you're just in this box you're just on this level um it's not supposed to be that way um and I and I just have no like qualms of like saying that I wonder if this has been insufferable to listen yeah. to if you're a singleton I have thought about that along the way. Do we just sound like we're like on our high horses because we're like so in love and like? Well, from the outside, it, this type of thing always seems like the the lovey dovey delusion mm. of couples. Until I think it's one of those things where you're, like I said earlier, you're either in it or you're outside of it. And if you're outside of it, you can't understand it. And if you're inside of it, you want to talk about it endlessly because it seems so marvelous and it seems so amazing and you just want to try and understand it better and i feel like it's not like obviously there aren't there haven't ever been like problems along the way but it coming back to like what we've said it's it the thing is not that oh well you don't have problems and you don't have arguments and oh you're just so in love no it's you talk about things you don't hide things from each other you don't lie when confronted with something you are completely honest about how you feel you tell the other person what you want whether that's like what you want for dinner or like what you want for sex like you I said that really strange for sex um you just just be honest man yeah. just like be yourself and then you know are there any specific to get away from this yeah Navel gazing into the nature of love. <laughs> Are there any specific instances of something very mundane and ordinary that you could point to where it was a difficult thing to adapt to living together? The thing that springs to my mind is it was kind of hard to get used to sleeping in the same bed with someone every night, sharing a bed because for, you know, whatever it was, the first 17, 18 years of my life, I slept in my own bed. I slept yeah. in a single bed, which is when <laughs> you especially feel like I need my space because there's so little of it to be enjoyed. And so just on a practical level, getting used to that was a challenge. Yeah. Um, I feel like... All I can think of is, like, on the opposite end, when you... I didn't have that in terms of, like, getting used to sleeping with someone because I don't experienced it before. But also the fact that I constantly do want to be with that person, sleeping together is perfect for me. Like, I like that. I enjoyed that. Um, so it, it wasn't hard. But what is hard is if we're ever apart... Like when we lived in London and I would come home and visit family, it's really difficult to sleep alone. Just like if um, on the rare occasion that we go to bed at different times, which is another thing I want to talk about, um, we go to bed and we wake up together, like for the most part. Um, there's none of that like oh, well, every night he actually goes to sleep before me and then I come to bed. And we wake up at different times because we each have different time, like work schedules. It's not like that. Um, 
for the most of our relationship, we went to bed together and we woke up together. I do actually sleep a bit longer than you now, though, but that's for a very specific reason that I won't go into. Um, You're a vampire. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think those types of things are important. Like, we eat our meals together and we go to sleep at the same time and we wake up at the same time. And that's, like, I really enjoy that, like, a lot. Um yeah, it's those nice little rituals that you share together and that give structure to the day. Like we have a meal together, we sit down on the couch, eat together and watch something fun on the TV. Or we both say we're ready to go to bed. And so we both get ready together and then we get into the bed at the same time. And we do cute little stuff before we fall asleep, just playing with each other. Yeah. Or making jokes or talking about things that had happened. Those things seem like such small aspects of your life together. But like you said, when you're away from the other person, you realize how valuable they are, how much they enrich your life. That whole thing, what you just said, is actually one of my favorite parts of our relationship. Eating together, partly because I love food so much, and so eating with you is like a double whammy. But then... The way that we kind of like go to bed to get like at the same time and do have those like really cute kind of like moments that happens like not every now and then, every night that happens and we have these like fun times and we play like we're very playful people. I think it's really important that you can be silly with your partner. If you can't kind of like let go and just be silly and say the things that come into your head that don't make any sense, um, then you're constantly kind of like holding back who you are. Um, Because a lot of times we don't make sense and it's important to just kind of let that out. But something I wanted to say is when you said about like, is there something mundane that was like hard to do? My mind actually went to like something even more mundane. And that was, and you're going to think this is silly. You're not like a clean freak or anything, but you are, I would say, clean, not clean, neater. You're neater than I am. Like, I, like, if I'm having a snack or something or I get a drink, before I met you, I would just leave that stuff on the side until, like, it absolutely had to be tidied up, if that makes sense. Because I was kind of messy that way. Um, and then if I got up to get another drink, I wouldn't even always take out my other glass. I would like accumulate cups. And so I was kind of like messy in that way, but I felt like because of the way you are, I wasn't, I wasn't like that anymore when we met. So that's kind of a way that I adapted, but it wasn't like something I had to let go of that I didn't want to let go of. it. In this case, it was for the better because obviously that's something that I wanted to do. I just didn't. Um, and that's what my mind went to when you said yeah, that. I understand that. Like little things like that. For me, that was just and is just, I think, an OCD thing where if I see something out of place or I see something dirty or I see something that just visually bugs me and oftentimes, like you said, it's because it's something that's unclean or it's something that's messy. It's like I can't relax. I can't get yeah. comfortable. I can't forget about it. And so 
of course there's a part of me that just wants to be laissez-faire about it just wants to be super cool about everything just wants to let things go but there's something about my broken brain which won't let me do it not broken and wow it's nice of you to say hey that's my boyfriend you're talking about (laughs) how dare you (laughs) i'll claw your eyes out (laughs) i will and yeah i have to say to myself at a certain point it will bug me too much and so i can't deal with it it's less effort to get up and move the glass and rinse it out and put it on the side than it is to sit there next to it and have it constantly on my mind, constantly bugging me. And of course, it's a completely irrational aversion. It's a completely... The degree to which it irritates me is not justifiable. It is my mind blowing it out of proportion. But that is a symptom of OCD. You obsess about little things that aren't important and you know they're not important and everyone around you is telling you that it's not important. But your mind clings onto it and clings onto it and you can't drag it away. It digs its fingernails in and it screams and kicks. And eventually you just have to give in. And that's what happens in a lot of these situations. And I have noticed that you did from the get-go get a lot better at that. Yeah. In recognition of the fact that I had a difficult time with it. And I did really appreciate that you were making those not sacrifices because that seems too strong a word to use but you understood from an early stage that I wasn't exaggerating how much I found that difficult to be around and you modified the way that you went about things accordingly because it's not that much effort to do it especially if you know that it really improves the other person's quality of life in that moment it's not going to be on their mind it's not going to be bugging them yeah and obviously while like i could say like well i prefer to do it this way really it's not it's just a habit that i needed to break and that was totally okay for me to break so that you could be comfortable and it wasn't like a second thought as soon as i started doing it i just did it and so it's it just became a thing but were there anything anything's like that like not in terms of OCD but like mundane like that that you kind of did or changed or whatever it's a good question I'm just trying to think I'm sure there are tons of them but it's kind of the case where they're settled matters now like I would have known all the different things I was trying to work on if you'd asked me a year into us living together but at this point, they're all mm. done. Like, I've already made those changes. I feel like, as well, there are a certain amount of things that you will automatically... Like you were saying how um, when you, you first meet someone or you're not living together yet, you might kind of, like, pretend almost to uphold these certain ways about yourself that aren't necessarily true if you're just on your own. And so there are certain things like you know, the first time you came over to my house, I would have cleaned up the stuff straight away because that's something that you do when you have company. And so 
there are certain things like that that you would just automatically do anyway as a pretense and then as you start to learn that oh I noticed that person doesn't do that and so there's this thing when you like someone or you love someone where you want to make them happy and it's not like a sacrifice it's like it makes you happy yeah, to make them happy. It's like you're coming from here and I'm coming from here and we naturally want to kind of move. <laughs> no one can see the elaborate <laughs> hand gestures you're making. And we do, and you just naturally want to come together because you enjoy that and you want that and you know it's going to make the other person happy, which makes you happy. To narrate this, she has two little hand people <laughs> slowly coming together in an embrace. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe what she's trying to act out. Yeah. They're, they're together right now and they're happy and they're warm and they're in love. Just like me and you. Would have been good if one hand had pink nail polish and one hand had blue yeah. nail polish. So it could be like me and you. Uh-huh. That would have required a lot of forethought yeah. and planning on your part. Well, they are blue. They're just dark blue. Yeah. And I guess you could say my hand, my hands are Your pink. hands are blue because you've got... Really- frostbite oh my god my one hand we're gonna have to amputate one I no which one do you want to lose right left or right right we're gonna take the left one i'm sorry no, I need it was a it. trick question I need my left hand is really cold for some reason just my left hand though not my right hand it's because you had it in an ice bucket yeah did i which if you think about it was not very wise no i don't think so why why is my hand in an ice bucket your foot's know. in an ice bucket and now I'm going to have to saw it off. No. <laughs> and I'll keep it, like, on the shelf. That's horrendous. As an ornament. And there's a little plaque that says Ryan's left foot. Because we might get confused otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of foots on the shelf. A lot of yeah. feet on the shelf. A lot of foots on the shelf. If it's an individual foot over and over and over again, are those foots or are they collectively feet? Yeah, because is it just feet if it's, like, a, like your a left and your feet? right? Hmm. Tune in next week for semantic <laughs> questions with Ryan and Samantha. Can't believe we actually had to like pause to. Think we get about to the that. heart of all the dumb questions about grammar and etymology that you never cared yeah. or wanted or needed to have answered. <laughs> to move on from questions about the word "foot," you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's worth touching on. This is a weird statement to make, but I think anyone who's listened to this and is either in a couple or has been in a long-term relationship where you live with the other person will understand exactly what I mean. You have to get good at having arguments. Yes. By which I mean you have to figure out the best way to have arguments so that they don't turn into shouting matches. They don't turn into these knock-down, drag-out brawls where people's feelings get hurt and things get said that are irrevocable you can't take them back and it damages the relationship forever and moving forward you have to figure out a way where when you're both superheated and you're angry and you want to have it out in this conversation and you want to get into this needless argument you have to find a way to quarantine that emotion that anger that sense of i really want to browbeat this person into accepting my position because if you don't it's very very corrosive to the foundation of a relationship when you are in those situations and 
the other person no longer feels like your best friend, no longer feels like your lover, no longer feels like your favorite person in the world. They feel like an adversary. They feel like someone who is antagonistic, who you have to defeat in this argument, who you, who is trying to do something hurtful to you. Those situations are the complete anathema of you maintaining a healthy relationship and a healthy view of your partner. And so one of the things you learn very quickly is you need to understand how both of you tend to argue and you need to figure out a way how to diffuse or even just defang the strength of your anger in those situations. I agree and I'm glad you brought that up. I think there are two things that can really help you um, achieve that. One is to not let things build. If you have a feeling about something or you're upset about something or whatever it is, say it. Just say it. Don't let it build on top of something else that has nothing to do with the original feeling because that never works. That's also how you blow up. I feel like we've never had a true shouting match because that's not something we do. We usually talk about it straight away. Sometimes we get like rattier with each other, but things never get like truly out of control. And that's because we're in control to begin with. And the other thing is, is to learn what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And what I mean by that is, one thing that's not acceptable to me is we don't go to sleep not having resolved things. Because I feel like I physically can't handle that. I feel like I'm going to explode. Like if things aren't... Like a little sadness balloon. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I feel. I physically kind of get like shaky and I'm like, this has to be resolved. Like not straight away. That is how I used to be. It's like, no, it has to be resolved straight away. But I learned that no, thanks to you, that like, no, sometimes you have to walk away from things because otherwise the the, the situation that we're in right now... Things can't be resolved. Things are too heated. We can't think clearly. Sometimes you have to walk away. That is something that I really had to learn because I couldn't just let you kind of like do what you needed to do. And eventually I was like, okay, I can do that for the most part, but we have to resolve it before I go to sleep. And so that that's what I mean when I say you have to learn what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. You see, you said there was two things there and I might be preempting you by saying that I think the second thing, if you're talking about knowing what's acceptable and what is deeply unacceptable and really is a poisonous influence on your relationship when you're talking about arguments is you can never allow yourself to get to that point where you're insulting your partner or you're swearing at them or you're just using abusive language towards them because that drives a wedge in the love you have for each other because like i said you start to feel like that other person is your enemy you start to feel like there's someone who is actually trying to hurt you and even when you resolve the argument i think it leaves a splinter in your mind which you can't really articulate why you started to feel different about Mm. this person but 
you realize that something has in a very subtle almost imperceptible way changed your view of them changed how strongly you feel that they are someone who can be trusted they are someone who you can put your faith in and rely on to never want to consciously hurt you and i think as soon as you open up that thing of like letting each other say those things to each other when you argue sorry those things to me are unforgivable you can say these things and then you can say afterwards i'm sorry i didn't mean it but everyone knows you did mean it because you said it and you're not going to just you meant it at the time yeah you meant it at the time and for me that's enough to know even though you only meant it at the time and you don't mean it now you still did mean it at some point and i think if you think those those things about each other in the first place then that kind of like breaks the foundation anyway so i mean i think we as people would never naturally go there anyway but it is also known with each other that we don't go there like i would never ever say something purposely to hurt you like i would never think in my mind i know this would be upsetting to him so i'm going to purposely say it because we're in an argument like our arguments don't get to that place because we don't allow it It doesn't need to but there are so many people that just let themselves explode all over the place and these tiny thoughts that may once have like not meant anything they had let it have so much meaning in the moment and it's hurtful and you can't take it back because you'll always remember that time you had an argument and he called you whatever or he said this or he said whatever and it's unforgivable yeah it's a case of on the one hand personal self-control where you have to have that discipline to be like we're only going to argue within the context of these certain boundaries and there's certain things that are off limits and so even if we are heated towards each other even if we raise our voices a little bit even if we clearly are being argumentative and we're trying to put across a point forcefully and kind of angrily we never let things spiral out of control we never let things venture into the wasteland of saying something that like you said is completely unforgivable in the long run And the other part of it is always retaining that sense of this is a person that I love. This is a person that I care for. If anyone else, if I saw someone else being mean to her, if I saw anyone else insulting her or swearing at her, I'd want to rip their head off with my bare hands. (laughs) And so you need to remember that when, even when you're having arguments, even when you know that at the moment, I don't feel that as an immediate emotion because I'm so focused on my own anger. I'm so focused on my own petty desire to win this argument. But you have to really hold on to the fact that this is a person that you love deeply and that you want to protect from any harm, whether that's physical or emotional. And I think if you keep that in mind, it allows you to be like, I'm not going to let this get out of control because it would be wrong. It would be me shirking my responsibility to take care of this person, even when my emotions kind of compromise my judgment. I think it's important to know that and to try to get to a point where you argue because in a sense you have to argue because you disagree profoundly on something or like 
there's nowhere else to go in this conversation but to kind of like disagree and because otherwise you're 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 arguing over petty things you're not really mad about but you know you could be mad about if you chose to which brings me to a point that you once said to me early on in our relationship is sometimes you can choose to be mad and you can choose to like not be you can choose to let it go and I really have never forgotten that because there are things that can kind of like annoy you or like you can say oh I wish you hadn't have done that or but I'm talking about in like small instances but actually if you really think about it it doesn't fucking matter it's not a competition and that's what you need to accept it's not a competition. It's not about how many times this person has like gotten their way over something or how many times like you've cooked that week or done the dishes or whatever. It's about what it truly makes you feel. And if it really isn't a big deal, just let it go. Just let it go because it doesn't fucking matter. And I think that's really important. Yeah, you have to develop that maturity and that self-mastery to be able to just swallow those little when you can feel inside yourself oh this could really irritate me if i gave into it and i indulged it and i stoked the flames and i brushed the kindling wood together this could turn into a raging fire inside myself and then i'm going to want to get into a screaming match with this person because i let things escalate inside myself i didn't keep a handle on my emotions I didn't keep that perspective of I know what's important and this petty little trivial concern which has kind of put me out or I feel has slighted me in some way, that's not important. And I, if I can just put that aside, if I can just move on or if I can just calmly explain my grievance to the other person, I am going to do that. Because an extension of that is you ask yourself, is this person... That like is your partner doing this thing that you think has annoyed you or that feels like has annoyed you or whatever? Is it like a disrespect thing? Because if it's not, then it doesn't matter. Because I think if ultimately you know you respect each other, you you trust it. It's like a party happening outside. There's like a party van that's just pulled up. <laughs> There's girls in bikinis handing out bottles yeah. of champagne. There's guys with big gold chains. I did not know what you were going to say. In sick rhymes over fat beats <laughs> there's actually a jacuzzi embedded into the truck oh my god i just imagine like one of those really like high like pickup truck type things but like what did we didn't we see one like that at the supermarket the other day it was really high and i was like i would need like a stepladder just to get in it it wasn't a with like those high truck. beam lights it was just it was a truck that was raised quite high oh I imagine that the one outside has got like high beam lights and like flames. Flames. Flames painted on the side. Oh, I thought you were going to say like flames shooting out of the exhaust oh, or something. We're taking this to a whole new level. Hey, they're filming a music video for the hottest <laughs> new rapper. They can't afford any half measures. No. They can't cut any corners. They need a viral hit on YouTube. <laughs> Which is so hard to get these days. Um. So yeah, so I think it's important that you ask yourself if like there's respect and understanding and like is this person trying to get something over you because if they're not then just fucking let it go because it doesn't matter but obviously at the same time if something really matters to you you should feel like you can say it 
Like another thing is, is if you expect something of someone and they don't do it and then you just go about like, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Like, but it's not really fine. Then that's going to build up and you're going to resent that person. If you expect your partner to be a certain way, but you don't vocalize that, then that's on you. That's not on them. Yeah. Passive aggressiveness is like venom. It's a killer. People don't realize that when they're being passive aggressive, they're doing a disservice to their relationship. They're actually attacking what makes their relationship work, what makes their relationship strong. They sometimes, I think, justify it in their head or they rationalize it in the sense of, well, I'm not actually confronting this person, so I'm actually doing us both a benefit. But by being kind of obliquely resentful to the other person, by dropping these little hints or having or expressing your annoyance through your face expressions, whatever it is, whatever you're doing to not confront the issue head on, and to not plainly explain to the other person what's going on with you emotionally, you are creating this friction between you and the other person, which oftentimes your partner doesn't even understand. Mm. They just feel like, this is strange. Why is this other person starting to act so distant to me? Why is this other person always scowling at me? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, you're in the corner building it up in your head. This person doesn't really love me they don't respect me and they don't whereas they don't know what you're thinking they don't know what you're feeling you know eventually you do get to a point where you can read your partner like really well you know you might know when they're upset you might know what they need when they need it but like there are still going to be things where it's like I can't read your mind you have to just tell me and that's okay it's okay to just come out and say I want this even if you think it's selfish just say it because ultimately it is about you and if you remember that you yourself are like an important part of the relationship then it's going to work yeah you have to be selfish and selfless at the same time yeah you have to take care of yourself and take care of the relationship Because if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to start to grow resentful. You're going to start to feel like I'm not getting what I need out of this relationship. I'm making too many sacrifices. And in turn, that's going to corrode the strength of your connection with that person. But you also have to take care of the relationship and sometimes prioritize that over your own petty concerns. Because ultimately, that's the most important thing. So, yeah. Wow, I think that's a good... Well, I feel like we could talk about this forever, but yeah, I think that's a good place to that kind was of a like. Lengthy symposium. Yeah, I hope we didn't like tune out because we're just like and how it so should be amazing. conducted. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what have you got? What's the next article? So yeah, so, moving on. Moving on. There's not really a good segue from that no. to this, as there. We need like a sound. Often is not a you wacky know, if we were like professionals we'd have like a soundboard and we'd have like noises and stuff i think if you're a professional who does that you shouldn't be a professional anymore <laughs> anyway okay, hit me with it. i saw a news article on ars technica not 100 percent sure that's how you say that website name say it even how you though say it, i've been baby. going on it for years i've never heard it said out loud it's entitled treat robots as quote-unquote electronic persons but with kill switches argue meps 
And it's about a committee on the EU which wants to look into whether robots should be treated as not people, but should be granted some degree of rights. And I thought this was an interesting topic because AI is advancing so fast. Robotics is advancing so fast. We're starting to get these more and more lifelike humanoid robots. And it's, of course, the continual fascination of sci-fi. This is always the vogue thing right now. Do robots that are very similar to human beings deserve to be treated like robots or do they deserve to be treated in a similar way as we would ideally want to treat other people? When you say rights, give me an example of what you might mean and and like, I guess, like a scenario. Like, Okay, let me... This is the easiest way to imagine it. This is the simplest hypothetical which i think lays the matter bare if you made a robot and it had instead of synapses instead of gray matter it had microchips it had transistors but you replicated a human brain it had the same capacity to think as a human being it had the same kind of consciousness the same awareness of itself as a discrete thinking being If that was the case and it had the same and it had a comparative intelligence to a human being, it fought the same way human being fought, it contemplated things in a deep way, just like we think people do, would you then think it should be treated with the same respect as a human being or that it should be granted the same rights as a human being, even though it's completely artificial, even though guys in a laboratory built it and designed it and produced it but like what type of rights like the exact same rights as human being if it had so if a robot wants to marry another robot that type of right (laughs) or like what a one to gravitate to or or the robot says don't switch me off and so you don't but you really you want to switch them off like those types of rights. that's those are the conundrums that need to be mused over because it is its own field of ethics that you have to take seriously if we suppose that and i think this is the supposition that we implicitly make as a society as a people that beings should be respected or granted rights to the degree that they demonstrate intelligence or that intelligence is discernible then we have to say that if there was a robot if there was an android, whatever you want to call it, which was as intelligent as a human being, it deserves to be treated as well as a human being. And the reason why I say that we think that is, why do we think it's okay to step on an ant? You're a living being and it's a living being. So why is it okay for you to step on it? I would say that even though you may not articulate this and even though you may not have this as a conscious thought process you think it's okay or at least permissible or at least not a big deal because the ant is not very smart it doesn't feel pain to the high degree at the nuanced level that a human being does do we know that 
I think we assume that fairly securely based on how big and how complex its brain is not. But if an ant feels pain, in an ant world, the pain is still the biggest it can be in terms of a person feeling pain in a person world. Does that make sense? And so you've got to ask yourself whether even though to you that pain is minuscule, to the ant it is still the greatest pain it can feel. Sure, that's true. And also to really think about it, if I think about the fact that I'm stepping on loads of ants, it will upset me. But I don't think about it. Just like I don't think about plucking flowers as killing living beings but they are that's slightly different because they're not but to some people they really are like i'm just saying from a strict biological scientific standpoint flowers don't have brains whereas even small insects like ants have either some kind of brain or something like a brain. Okay, this is where my brain's going. If we think of robots and androids, or whatever you want to call them, as like living beings who have, um, you know, who are intelligent beings who can, in their way, feel things... I feel like we have to think about we can we can maybe maybe compare that to because it's not the same as a human as the way we know animals can feel certain things and animals some animals can be really fucking intelligent but obviously intelligent in terms of an animal not in terms of a person and then ask yourself do I know you where you meat? with this yeah because if you eat meat, if you eat that animal, aren't you taking away that animal's rights? To not be eaten? Yeah. Or I guess more poignantly, to not be killed. Yeah. And so I feel like you might just end up being a hypocrite if you then say, well, no. Because I would say that an animal... Especially right now, with the, how technology technology is now, an animal has more feelings and thoughts. Well, especially more feelings, and depending on what animal, more thoughts than an than an android. Right now, sure, and I yeah. would care more about hurting an animal than I would hurting a machine. And I am a meat eater. When I think about eating meat on a on a on the realest level of how many cows and chickens and stuff are being killed, it does upset me. But then what happens is I cut myself off from thinking about it so that I can still eat meat. So I'm selfish. But it's almost like a inevitable hypocrisy because you have been raised to eat meat 
And so once you reach the point of being able to really think for yourself, to really contemplate things in a deep way, to have these ethical debates in your head, and you see that it's very difficult to justify from a moral standpoint that a cow had to get its throat slit so that you could have this steak. It's in a way, and I know there's going to be a lot of vegetarians who want to come to my door with pitchforks and flaming torches. But in a way, it's like it's too late. It's already become ingrained in you that you eat meat. And so I think to a certain extent, your mind will always try to find some workaround so that you either don't think about the fact that you can't really justify this to yourself or you do think about it, but you come up with some cockamamie explanation for why mm. somehow this is okay because they're just chickens and chickens love to be killed and eaten <laughs> or whatever. But are you then saying really that meat eating can't be reversed? And by reversed, I don't mean can't get all those animals back. But if <clears throat> if all the people that, if they really thought about me and they expose themselves to the horrible situations that animals have to be in in order to be killed and made into meat not made into meat but you know what I mean made into meat made into edible meat they are already um, meat that's the problem about all those people that would change their mind if they kind of let themselves do you not think that that would be like worth it like in terms of like reversing it somewhat yeah, I didn't want to come off like I'm saying they couldn't make the choice even if they wanted to, yeah. because obviously they can, people do. My point is that it's so difficult to do that, and there's so much inertia that stops you from doing it because you just keep on eating meat. Instead of deciding tomorrow I'm going to start eating grains and legumes and beans, you just have another steak because there's steak in the fridge. My point is just that you have to really, 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 really try to have a meat-free diet and to stick to that and to make that just your mode of being, that people will always take the path of least resistance mm. in order to maintain their current behavior. But then to address the point that you were getting to, do I think it would be worthwhile <clears throat> if people did do that on the basis of that it would prevent animal suffering on an unimaginably large scale i have to say just like you did that i do think that and so the logical implication of that should be that i embrace vegetarianism and i advocate vegetarianism for others but there's just something in me that doesn't want to make that leap and so won't and so hasn't same that's the same with me i know that if I really thought about it and stood by my feelings and conscious, let myself consciously make that decision every day, that it would be doable, in a sense. But I'm selfish in that I love chicken and I eat it every day. And I don't have, right now, the will to make myself not eat it every day. <clears throat> But then the question is, if every time you wanted to open a pack of chicken breasts, raw chicken breasts to put in the steamer or to put in the pan, you had to watch almost like the 
ads that autoplay before YouTube videos. You had to watch, say, a 30 second clip of that particular chicken you're about to eat getting killed. That's horrible. Do you think you'd ever eat meat again? That's horrible. And I'm being honest when I say I want to cry. And that's the dilemma. Because when I, I, I do love animals and I do, and I am a hypocrite and I am selfish because I do get really sad when I think about it, but not sad enough to put the animals first. But isn't because... it more true to say that you don't think about it enough? Because if you yeah, did think yeah. about it all the time, the sadness would build to the point where yeah. you would reach that decision. And that's why when I think about it and get sad, I cut myself off because I have to not think about it in order to eat meat. But you don't have to eat meat, so you don't have to make that decision. No, but like you said, it's ingrained in me. And when I'm choosing food, I don't purposely think I'm going to eat meat, which means harming animals it has these i just think i'm gonna eat this ingredient and i love it i don't think about where it where it comes from and that's the problem but then and this is tying in several different things we're talking about the topic at hand and something we mentioned earlier one of the main reasons why it's easy not to scruple against eating meat yourself is chickens can't tell you how much they want to not die chickens can't tell you how much they don't want to be eaten And if we did have intelligent robots, if we had androids that looked like humans, spoke like humans, fought like humans, felt like humans, and they said to you, like you mentioned earlier, I don't want you to turn me off. I'm very, very afraid that you're going to do it. I don't know what comes after robot death. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. You probably wouldn't turn the android off. But you still kill the chicken because the chicken can't tell you that it doesn't want to be killed. The chicken can't tell you, but the chicken can demonstrate. The chicken can fucking run around, clucking its feathers, quacking, saying, don't fucking chop my head off. Not quacking, but that squawking (laughs) Have you made some chicken-duck hybrid that's particularly tasty? They can run around and fucking try to escape and peck you to death. And Peck say, you, to death. you know what I mean? That's them demonstrating. You'd have they to don't... passively accept your fate if a chicken was to overpower you. I'm gonna you fucking and peck, peck you, you to death. death if you don't <laughs> fucking let me finish. They can demonstrate that they don't want to be hurt, just like most animals can and will. But the difference is, we choose to ignore it. <clears throat> Obviously, I think it would be different if it was like. Obviously, the first level will be an android telling you. It doesn't want to be turned off. And eventually, like all the films and movies and books, it will be an android that looks human. Obviously, then it will be its very hardest. But the fact that a voice can come out and say, I have the right to do this, or I want the right to do this, don't turn me off, I am feeling perplexed, or whatever it wants to say... That's different because that's a voice and you have a voice and everyone you love has a voice. And it's like, that's like real kind of like, that's what makes it human. That's what makes it real. That's what makes it feel like murder when you turn it off. Instead of when you kill a chicken, it feels like making food for yourself. Yeah. And I also, going back to the animal thing, unless I really had to, I would never obviously kill an animal myself, which again is like a level of like, 
Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy and selfishness. I don't want to put myself through that to get the meat. You want to keep your hands clean. But I'm clean. totally okay with other people killing those animals so I can eat them. Do you think they are bad people? No. But is that just because you want to believe that you're not a bad Probably. person? <laughs> we get into the bedrock because of hypocrisy. Because there are also, I guess you can quote-unquote say, like, humane ways of killing animals. And there are farmers or people slaughterers that kill choose to kill animals in the non-humane way which doesn't make any sense because you're killing so none of it's humane but um the least painful so you could say there are levels of like shit bags and like people who are doing it in the most kind of like ethical way but yeah i think you're right i think i'm saying they're not bad because i don't want to be bad and I definitely in the past have said things like, but that's like the way of life and, you know, animals, stupid, you know, when you're younger, you say stupid shit like, yeah, but animals, that's what they're meant for. Like, they're meant for that's eating. such a dark philosophical like, statement. But that's like a horrible thing to say and think because a bigger animal could come along and say that about us and we wouldn't like that. Well, that's where I would go with this. There's two interesting implications from where we're at in the conversation right now if there was a robot a robot race let's say which is even more grandiose but if there was a race of robots that were even more intelligent than us say by an order of magnitude we hadn't made them no we had made them but we'd come to the conclusion that they were significantly smarter than us they had a much higher consciousness than us they felt things more deeply than even we did. If in every way they were more intelligent than us, would not our moral intuitions about the degree of a creature's intelligence determining the degree to which it must be respected and must be consigned rights, would that not then mean that we had to privilege them, the robots over us, we had to be okay with them treating us as their lessers? And just to take this to the absurd degree, but I think this kind of demonstrates it. If the difference in our intelligence was the same, and this, of course, would be an astronomical difference, but if the difference in our intelligence was they were as smart as we are in comparison to ants and we were as smart as ants were, would it then be okay for them to casually step on us? I think the answer is always going to be we are the best because we have the power, to put it plainly. We have the ultimately, even though animals on their own could charge at us, you know, if if I'm one person and I meet a bear, it can kill me. Um, I meet a bear. Or even a cow, like a cow could charge at me and kill me. <laughs> if I make a bear's acquaintance. But ultimately, we have the power to... to get all the animals together and kill them and make farms. And as people, we also have the kill switches for the robots or we have the capability to go up to that robot, put a fucking screwdriver in it and turn it off or whatever. Don't know why we're turning it off with the screwdriver and not a switch. But ultimately, if we have the power like that, then we are always going to be superior slash with the most rights because we can kill the animal and we can turn off the robot but the robot I, even though the robot 
This is not very eloquent. Even though the robots and the animals could kill us, maybe, really then, it's the fact that we are not only capable of killing them, we want to. Whereas the robot might not want to kill the human race and the animals might not want to kill the human race. And that's how we're going to always be the better. I don't know. Do you not... I can't have... Like, I hate not having formed thoughts and just speaking like that, but that's kind of where my mind That's the perils of ongoing conversation in a podcast. I just... I think it's a conundrum, the one that I pose, that is very difficult to answer in any other form than, yes, it would be okay for our robot overlords to crush us because we think it's basically okay to crush ants. Unless you stipulate that there's something magical about human beings. There's something about human beings that puts them apart from everything else no matter whether that other thing is more intelligent. And of course, we are inclined to do so because we are human beings. We're always going to look at things from a perspective that privileges human beings as the best thing, as the thing that's the greatest, the thing that must be protected, the thing that must rule over everything else. But that's because we don't have the distance of seeing ourselves from the outside. We only have perspective from inside that in group and looking at everything else as the out group and that's a problem because the robots are going to look at themselves as robots are the best there's something special about robots human beings were just this primitive ancestor that gave birth to us there's no need to respect them as some kind of special untouchable species they're just the most intelligent animal on this earth until we came along and we're not even an animal. We're much better than that. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. there's no good, objective, coherent reason to say that human beings are the center of everything. We're just inclined to think so because we're not perfectly rational thinkers. And I think it's not going to change until there is kind of like a walking, talking robot that like half the population has in their home. You know, like, I think until then, and until you kind of feel like you care about that robot or that robot benefits you in some great way that, like, without it, you'd just be lost or, you know, we're talking about these intelligent robots, then we're going to form friendships with these robots. Until we do actually get to that place, I don't think any any of these kind of, like, these discussions are just like purely kind of like what you might think, what you think you would do, what like you yeah, know. it's all speculation, and it's just like really hard to actually know what it would really be like because I think it will be like you want to give them rights because, like I said, you're going to care about them, but you can't get to that place until you really are at that place. But the problem is, then it's too late. Then there's no ethical framework from which you've built your relationship with the robots you can't do it once you're already in that situation because if it does turn out that it's unethical to keep intelligent robots as slaves you've already been doing that for 30 years before you decide hey we need to really sit down and think about this robot slavery issue that's why i think these thought experiments 
this kind of out there philosophizing about the ethical implications is important because it shows you the gaps in your own moral logic. Yeah. And we're either going to have to mend those with new ideas and new ways of looking at how intelligent creatures can coexist and what rights are due intelligent creatures, especially in terms of rights granted by one type of creature to another. And we are going to have to answer these questions sooner rather than later. People have this idea that they're going to die before they see intelligent robots. Like it's this thing that's 100 years away, 200 years away, 300 years away. Their grandchildren's grandchildren are going to have to worry about this. So we don't have to care about this. Let's just have fun in sci-fi movies depicting what it would be like to have a sexy robot girl that you decide to have sex with or not have sex with. But it may be the case that in 15 or 20 years, we have robots that start to be intelligent to the level of, as far as we can tell, animals. And by that point, because they're going to be so comparable to a living creature, even though, it, like I said, it's at such a low level to begin with, we are going to have to go into that with some idea of what is the right way to treat them. What is the right way to treat them so that we don't disgrace ourselves in a moral sense? Wow. And then the other thing that I often think about is if we do get to the point where, and we are fast approaching this, and this does seem to be the course that we're inevitably plowing on down, where robots do all the menial jobs they do all the simplistic boring jobs they do anything that a robot can do so you've got self-driving cars instead of uber drivers you have not even a robot in the driver's seat you just have a very very intelligent computer inside the car directing it where to go maybe we'll get to the point where instead of a guy at mcdonald's dunking your fries in the boiling grease it's just a robot doing it maybe we'll get to the point where instead of supermarkets having their shelves stocked by people being paid minimum wage there's just a fleet of robots which take care of that when we get to the point where that is just the norm and we have this huge workforce of robots and then we get to the point where they're as intelligent as humans like i said we're gonna have this underclass of enslaved intelligent creatures where they're telling us that they don't enjoy it they're saying we have consciousness so we can feel boredom we can feel suffering we can feel displeasure with our station in life and we don't enjoy this why are you making us do this we're gonna have to start thinking about the fact that it is a form of slavery But then, and I'm sorry to go on this monologue, but I just need to get all of this out. It makes you think about why we don't ask ourselves those same ethical questions about the existing menial labor underclass. If we would think that about robots and if we would lose sleep over whether the intelligent robot stacking the shelves at the supermarket doesn't like what they're being forced to do, why don't we lose sleep over the fact that there's this huge portion of humanity that is forced to do jobs that they don't want to do, or even worse, lives in extreme poverty where they can't feed themselves, they can't clothe themselves, they don't have clean drinking water. At a certain point, you 
almost get to the point where it's like, why the hell would I worry about robots being unhappy when there are billions of people enduring deep, unrelenting suffering right now? And that thought is not plaguing me day and night. And I'm not desperately racking my brain about how to alleviate their suffering. And I'm not screaming from the rooftops about what a horrible situation this is for us to find ourselves in from an ethical standpoint. Well, I think in terms of like the people doing that as a job, and why aren't we thinking of them them doing something unpleasant that they don't want to do, is because they're getting paid. And if we... Got, had robots do it, we wouldn't pay it, pay them. The idea is that we'd probably have to spend loads of money on buying our own robot and then we would make them do whatever job we wanted them to do and they would be treated as a machine and not a person. They wouldn't get paid. They would just have to do everything. But right now, we pay cleaners and maids and even some people have servants and we pay people to work in supermarkets and factories and warehouses and they all have to do that shit job but the difference is is yes they have to but they're getting paid for it so they are benefiting from it in some way whereas the robot isn't going to be benefiting from it they are literally going to be forced to do something they don't want to do for no reason But that raises the question of what is authentic, legitimate volition. Because if you're saying it's okay that we make humans do terrible, boring, unfulfilling jobs that they really don't want to do because they've chosen to do it. And of course, they get paid for it. So there's a kind of quid pro quo justification there. And so it would be different if we had robots where they were basically programmed to be our slaves. They could do no other than stock the shelves they could do no other than clean the toilets they could do no other than drive us where we want to go there are some wrinkles in that logic to the extent that how true is it to say that a poor person really makes the choice to work a crappy job when there's no jobs out there and this is the only one they could get and if they don't get a job they can't eat they can't feed their family they can't pay their rent they can't pay their bills Because in a way, didn't they also not have a choice? Because they were born into the station that they were born into. And they found themselves in the circumstances they found themselves in, in terms of the economy of their country, in terms of the abundance or scarcity they find when they look at the job market. Isn't it true that they are kind of forced into this false choice and told, well, what have you got to complain about that you're cleaning rich people's toilets you chose to do this job and they were taught well this was the only job i could get and if i don't get a job my family will starve so i didn't really make this choice this choice was forced upon me it's not fair to say that i decided this for myself well first of all you have a choice you just don't have a good choice the difference is is that you have a choice wow that's pretty deep and robots won't have a choice And the second is, to go deeper into that, is that lots and lots of choices are made in order for you to get to a point where you do something that you don't want to do. Even if you do start out in the shittest situation, like 
not the shittiest, but one of the shittiest, like being born into like a poor family who are uneducated. So you don't really end up getting the education you need to like um, get the start that you wish you want, like the ideal start to in order to get into a profession that you want to get into. Those are all still choices. They're just shit choices. Um, if you're aware that you're going to end up in a situation where you have shit choices like your parents had shit choices, then you need to make the choice to get yourself into a better situation. And if there isn't any way that you can get yourself into a better situation, like there's no money, there's no way you can educate yourself in terms of like trying to get a higher paying job. Well, if that's the case, then it's true that you don't have a choice and then you have the right to complain. I mean, you have the right to complain anyway, but like... It makes sense It's for you more to of a, like, yeah, it's more of a... It's just the hand you were dealt. Exactly. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the time period for you to be born into. Yeah. You didn't choose the country you were born in. You didn't choose your shit education or yeah. your shit path to, like, this profession. Um. But again, even though you were thrust into all these shitty choices... You then, in the at the end, still benefit somewhat from it by getting paid, and that's going to be the crux of it. Is Whereas that the robots robot aren't going to be compensated. Like, in what way could we kind of like what benefits could we give them so that they aren't like slaves? You'd have to treat them like you treat people getting minimum wage. Yeah. But then... they'd have to. But that would mean then that they would have to almost have, like, social lives. Yeah. And then that's, like, a whole of a level it's of, There's no like, point giving them wages yeah. if they have to go into <clears throat> the recharging bay every yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. It entails so many strange implications. Something also I think about is... I think we're going to reach a breaking point eventually. Like I said, we're increasingly realising this idea of... Any job that a machine can do, big corporations are going to find a way to make machines do that because it's going to save them money. So you're going to, instead of people being employed as Uber drivers, Uber just moving towards, let's have a fleet of self-driving cars. And like I said, maybe McDonald's replaces all of its, you know, teenage burger flippers with a robot that flips that burger with 400% efficiency. And instead of delivery drivers for, say, Amazon, they just have drones that airlift your package to you. All of these jobs are going to be, and this is in our relative near future, are going to be taken by robots. And when this happens, when we see the realization of this dream of penny-pinching corporatrats, where millions and millions of people are pushed out of their jobs because it's cheaper to build a robot to do exactly what they're doing even better than they could possibly do it it's going to create this incredible friction in society where there's going to be 30 40 50 percent unemployment because anyone doing a menial job anyone doing manual labor anyone doing that kind of simplistic job and I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I'm just using that as a simple descriptor. 
they are going to find themselves permanently unemployed. And then what we're going to see is food riots. We're going to see water riots where people take to the streets and loot and burn and pillage because it's impossible for them to find work, literally impossible for them to find work, and they can't afford to eat. And those riots are going to be colossal because of the amount of people that are put out of work by the mechanization of simple jobs. That's going to be a terrible scenario. And we may see a situation where history repeats itself, where just like the Luddites of old, there's going to be gangs of people who want to break into the places they used to be employed and destroy the robots that take their jobs. We're going to see this huge portion of society turn against technology and become extremely adverse to the idea of any technology because it took their jobs. And we may find ourselves at the outcome where we intentionally hobble robots, where we intentionally make androids less intelligent than they possibly could be because otherwise they will take too many jobs. They will put too many people out of work and that will cause grave ruptures in the fabric of society that will cause too much unrest, that will cause too much unhappiness. I think several things need to happen before we get to this point. One is we need to say what we want robots to be for. Why are we creating artificial intelligence to be smarter than us? And what do we want to benefit from it? Then we should say... Alongside this artificial intelligence that's becoming more and more like powerful, if you will, is alongside that, at the earliest level, we need to have better and free education for everyone so that everyone can get the best possible start that they can get at, so that anyone can be whatever they want to be, so that there aren't millions of people out of the only thing that they know when the robots take over. So that we don't have people saying, I'm no longer employed and I can't get another job because these jobs aren't available anymore. And even if they like there were other jobs available, I don't know how to do them because I don't have that level of skill or education. And so I think that needs to, those things need to happen before we get to a level, that level of artificial intelligence. Yeah, you took the words absolutely from the tip of my tongue. Or, of course, the other option is the idea of universal basic income, where you give everyone, regardless of whether they work or not, enough money to live, to survive. You uncouple the link between someone being in work and that meaning they're able to survive. You say to everyone, regardless of whether or not you have a job right now, we'll give you enough money to keep a roof over your head. We'll give you enough money to put food on the table. And that, I think, is probably what's going to happen when, like I said, you have these huge, huge levels of unemployment. I think there's going to be a period of painful turmoil before that happens but i think that's going to be the band-aid that we put on society that's going to be the way we try to appease all those people who have been severely disadvantaged because 
robots have taken over so many different forms of work. I think what really frustrates me, and this relates to now rather than when we have the artificial intelligence that we're speaking about, is that the world and its leaders spend so much time and money and effort on trying to make the world work that they forget that people are what make the world work. And if people don't have, at a basic level, water or a roof over their head or clothes or food or an education or a job, then the world can't work. And I think that's why things like that universal basic income and free healthcare and free education, that's why I don't understand why those things aren't happening and in place already. Because you're putting over and over and over again money and effort into something that you're trying to make work, but you're failing to see that it's people that need to make it work. That's what we need. Yeah, it's crazy that we don't make sure that as our first priority, everyone is, and I mean this in a very basic sense, okay. Everyone has an okay life. Why are we spending billions and billions of pounds on nuclear submarines when we have people on the street that are homeless Mm. and mentally ill and they can't fend for themselves and they often die of hunger or drug overdoses and they're spit on by their fellow members of society why do we have situations where people are in work but are still in poverty they still can't afford to feed or clothe their children when we spend millions and millions of pounds on televised talent shows it's a strange imbalance that i think everyone's focus will become attuned to when there's this great upheaval, when there's this force of change, which will be robots becoming assimilated in the workforce. So, yeah, that was a... That was, like, the perfect place to kind of, like... Interesting discussion. Yeah. There's no answers, unfortunately, folks. We can't fix... The problems that are going to arise in society. It's so frustrating when you think about how little power in one sense that we have. It's like, obviously, as people, we have great power, especially when we band together. But in a way, we have no power. Like, there really is two sides to look at it. Well, like I said, it's going to be interesting when we start to see ourselves collectively as one group, as humanity. Mm. Say, if there was the emergence of some super-intelligent, super-belligerent robots that want to destroy us, we wouldn't think of ourselves in terms of, oh, well, I'm English and she's French, so I don't want to talk to her or I don't like her culture. Or, you know, we're so different, we can't possibly get along. We're like almost different subspecies we'd start to think of ourselves as we're all human and let's Mm. band together towards this common goal of protecting ourselves and ensuring our flourishing. But it's like you need that common enemy or that common dire dilemma to unite your soul. So, yeah. Wow. Shall we move on to the final topic of discussion? (laughs) Are you ready for this one? Are you ready for it? Is that the Space Jam song? I don't know what this Space Jam thing is that you speak of. 
Are you being serious? No, I don't. I feel like people always mention it as this like amazing You've thing. You've never seen Space and I'm Jam? like, why would I even want to watch that? That's my reaction. It has Michael no, Jordan and Bugs Bunny. I don't need Bunny. to know. I don't need to know. That should... Uh, if that doesn't sour you, no. I honestly would pronounce you a Philistine. No! Give me the topic. So, yeah. The next topic is based on an opinion piece I saw on The Spectator. It's entitled, It's easy to forget how unnatural it is to tolerate views we disagree with. And this guy was basically spurred to write this in response to the now ultra, ultra, uber viral video of the alt-right figurehead and rumoured neo-Nazi Richard Spencer being punched in the face at Trump's inauguration. I haven't seen the video. You haven't seen it? No. You're the one who told me about it, though, if I remember correctly. I don't need to see it, though, to know that some guy gets punched. It's pretty self-explanatory. Unprovoked. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely unprovoked. It's like a real, a cowardly despicable sucker punch it was completely out of the blue completely blindsided this guy but anyway and this guy saw just like i saw that there were hordes and hordes of people especially on twitter who would otherwise describe themselves as a liberal would otherwise describe themselves as fierce advocates for freedom of speech, who, in the wake of this video being released, were jubilant, were overjoyed, Mm. who basically took the stance that this guy is a scumbag Nazi. Isn't it awesome that he just got cold-cocked with a sucker punch? And this opinion piece basically restates the fact that if freedom of speech means anything, it means the freedom for people to say something that you really, 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 really disagree with without fear of violent reprisal. And I felt exactly the same as this guy in response to that, where people gave themselves that strange, irrational get-out-of-jail card where they were like, yeah, of course I'm for freedom of speech. That's just a given. I'm your typical liberal, democratically minded person with deep-rooted Western values of liberty and free inquiry and all the rest of it. But you don't understand. This guy really was disgusted. His views were really, really, really bad. And we really, really don't like him. So it's great that he got punched. And I think it's important that people point out the logical fallacy in that the self-serving blindness in terms of the ethical and actual implications of that view there are a few things in this world that almost gives people permission to just be like no that person does deserve to die and one of those is nazi but and I might get a lot of shit for this. <laughs> Nazi now is not what Nazi was in terms of like... That's a poor quote. When you say like, oh, the Nazis, like those were people who you know for sure were doing bad shit. 
Like they were pulling people from their homes and taking them to concentration camps. They were like setting people on fire or whatever. Like, and I'm not saying this guy's a bad, not a bad guy. And I'm not saying he hasn't ever done anything horrible. He may have done like a list long of stuff. I don't know about that. That's not, he's just a guy. Let me go back. You say a list long of stuff. (laughs) But this guy is not the same as what they were. Yes, I know there's that whole, why do we keep calling them all right when they're just Nazis? I agree. But like I said, Nazi now is not what Nazi was. And yes, they stand for horrible things And they say horrible shit and they incite people to say horrible shit. And they think, you know, by doing so, it almost gives that portion of people permission to to be outwardly racist and horrible. But you have to ask yourself if what you stand for, there are a massive portion of people that disagree with you. So is it okay if they punch you? It's not okay. And I feel like it's always like, like you said, like liberal people who like, you know, they aren't for like the death penalty or anything like that. And, but yet all of a sudden it's just okay to like beat people up and fucking abuse people. And it's not okay. Free speech is like one of the most important things. You should be able to express yourself in the way that you choose. And what people always obviously get stopped at is that, well, I don't like what you're expressing. And I don't like what they're expressing. And I don't like that more than half the people voted for Trump, but more than half the people voted for Trump or or the way it works. I know it's not like (laughs) one vote. It'd be nice if it worked that way, but... You know, you either are for like free speech and having the rights that we have or you're not yeah i think it is an all or nothing scenario and i am what is sometimes described as a free speech fundamentalist in that i believe in absolute free speech i think all these distinctions people make about hate speech or about jokes that are too risky too edgy to make i don't subscribe to any of that nonsense because i think that it's a slippery slope when you start saying that oh yeah of course we've got free speech but there's some things you can't say i think that what starts as quite a small amount of off-limit speech will slowly grow and grow and grow by consensus where people will start getting more and more and more lax with what they think crosses the line and they'll start saying well that should now be added to the list of things where you just can't say it otherwise we arrest you or otherwise we send a mob or whatever it is i just think that you have to draw a line in the sand where you say the baseline principle is that everyone should be able to say what they want to say and we uphold that as this sacrosanct value of our society as this untouchable ideal that we revere because it is the foundation of freedom it is the foundation of being able to live your life the way you want to live it, regardless of how other people feel about that, regardless of how that might offend or disgust other people. And if you lose that distinction, if you cede that ground, even by an inch, like I said, I think 
the people who want to claw that line further and further back and to add more and more things to the no-go areas of speech, they will always try to increase that domain. They will always try to expand that definition. But like you said, what's important here is that no matter how despicable, no matter how evil you may think that this guy or people like him, their views are, the difference here that needs to be maintained is between speech and action. Although someone like this guy may hold the same views as the actual Nazis did, he just holds the views as far as I can tell. Whereas the actual Nazis killed people, whereas the actual Nazis tortured people, whereas the actual Nazis treated people like they were vermin. They put them into death camps and tortured them and made them suffer to a profound degree. They actually carried out acts which we can respond to, which we can vilify, which we can say we would have resisted. Whereas this guy only, it could be argued, holds similar views to them. And I don't believe in the idea of thought crime. I don't believe in the idea of wrong think. I don't think that you can punish someone for the ideas they hold or the ideas they espouse. I think you can only act in that way when they do something. And I think if we lose sight of that crucial, crucial distinction, we're going to start losing ground in terms of the values of freedom, which we should hold dear as a liberal society. You could say that like people might be like, yeah, but if he thought he could get away with it, he would be doing all those actions. He would be killing people or he would be, you know, segregating people or whatever. Well, I don't believe in punishing people for hypothetical crimes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, The idea is that, well, okay, he's going to do it and then he's not going to get away with it. And that's the difference is that there are laws to stop people like that from doing things and obviously there are people that fall through those cracks that do them anyway um but like you said you can't you you can't stop people from just thinking these things the the key is to like you know there are fundamental things that need to be changed so that people don't think this way and it has to start at a base level it's always going to come back to like educating people um being inclusive of people not having these like invisible walls and like real walls as we might know might happen as mexico is about to yeah discover um between people and cultures and races and you know it's all really all about trying to teach people from that very very beginning level and to hope that in the future there'll be less and less people like that to the point where there won't ever be another like faction of people that will feel that way. Yeah, that's exactly the point. I feel like sometimes people would say in response to the position that I would advocate, they say, so we're just going to let society be taken over by Nazism or we're just going to let society be taken over by racism and white supremacism because we can't, react with violence when people espouse those views and it's like well no that's not the case at all the way that you fight those things is via the war of ideas the way that you stop people from going down that road is 
you enter into a dialogue with them, you enter into a debate with them, you try to educate them about the errors in their thinking, you try to educate them about the shortcomings of their perspective, of their experiences, and you try to show them and teach them why the way they think is not the way they should think. But you don't try to inflict that change upon them at the end of a fist or at the end of a knife or a gunpoint. And if it's too late for some people because you can't reason with crazy people, you then put your energies into educating and teaching the people that they are going to try and recruit. And then that way, they don't end up becoming an army of people or the majority of the population. They end up just being on their own, spouting this hate speech, which should be free even when we don't like it. Yeah, exactly. There's two points I would make from there. And the first is, you either have confidence that your values are the best and that you can prove that with good reasons, or you don't. I feel like sometimes people feel like you can't convince those who have quote-unquote bad ideas of the value of what you consider good ideas. And that's a very dangerous line of thinking. If you start to feel like there's no way we can convert the alt-right, people who are white supremacists, people who are racist, who are sexist, or who are homophobic, we can't show them the error of their ways. That's a very dire, very pessimistic view of human beings, of the human capacity to error correct in terms of our thinking, in terms of the way we view the world. I think liberals, and I'm using liberalism in the classical sense here, need to have the confidence of we can win this war of ideas. We can show that our ideals are the best. They produce the best outcome for society, that they benefit everyone in so many different ways. And we can convince people of that simply through dialogue, simply through conversation, simply by showing them what we have come to see. And by doing that, we can make obsolete those outdated, bad, restrictive, harmful ideas that we're trying to combat. I think part of that is only true to some extent, though, because like I said, when I said you can't reason with crazy, if someone's core values their whole life is based in something that has no reason, then it's really difficult to reason with that person because their whole like fundamental way of living is based on something that doesn't really make sense logically. It's like when you try to reason with like extremely religious people. You can't because their answer will always be God. It's like that old, often misattributed quote, you can't reason someone out of something they didn't reason themselves into. Yeah, that's basically what I said. I don't... That is what I said. How dare you invoke someone else to just repeat my own (laughs) words, Ryan. I don't agree with that, I have to say. Or at least I don't want to have to agree with that. I think it's the latter. I think that may be true. I think I just want to have a more optimistic view of the way the human psyche works. And maybe it comes back to what you talk about where if everyone was educated to a certain level, you could count on a certain degree of intelligence and rationality in the interlocutors you engage in debate yeah i think you have an optimistic view of people and i have a realistic view of people wow how dare you um yeah especially when like 
a person's main kind of like values and stuff comes from like the their parents or their family like new things are harder to it's harder for new things to happen when you constantly repeat that cycle that's why I keep coming back to education why outside education is really important so that you can try to kind of like learn these things for yourself and make your own kind of like set of morals or you know learn your own ways of kind of going about things yeah that sounds fair yeah i think people have to be shown that just because they've fought a certain way all their lives about something you don't have to get into that stubborn defensive stance of i will find a way to rationalize this or justify this at any cost even if it no longer seems logical to Mm. me even if it no longer seems to make sense to me because i've been committed to this all my life i've been a neo-nazi because my parents were neo-nazis or because my parents were white supremacists or whatever it is and so i will resist any attempt to dissuade me from this set of bad ideas just to kind of save face I think if we can get to the point where people don't hold on to ideas in that way, we will make great advances in terms of how we can reform people with disgusting, harmful views. Well, The other thing I would say is, an aspect that people often don't think about, is they have this idea that we can push all these people with horrible views to the margins of society. We can truly ostracize them where they have to meet in secret and discuss these horrendous ideas in their basements or in hidden places. If we can just do that, the problem will be solved. But of course, A, that's just out of sight, out of mind, because the problem hasn't been solved because you haven't convinced these people of why the way they're viewing things is so deeply wrong both in terms of a practical sense of this doesn't create good outcomes for societies and also wrong in a moral sense of it's evil. But the other thing is you also then make them think of themselves as this oppressed minority. You make them feel like they have been martyred because of their principles. You make them feel like they've braved this cost to hold on to these shitty ideas and that in turn makes it worth holding on to and so the end result will be that they will knit together even closer they'll feel an even greater sense of solidarity because in their minds they're all enduring this same oppression this same repression of you're not allowed to speak this above ground in daylight you have to hide in your little cubby holes and discuss Mein Kampf and talk about the Third Reich they're going to start to gain that romanticized view of themselves as these bold, brave, defiant dissenters who dare to go against what society is trying to force down their throats. Instead of, if they could compete in the marketplace of ideas, they would see how easily ridiculed and how easily disproven and picked apart and demolished their ideas are. They would start to feel silly. And that's the most dangerous thing to people like that. They never want to feel like they have dumb ideas. And if you can show them that that's the case, you can eventually get through to them and you can eventually get them to reevaluate their situation. 
But if you force them to hide away and build up these ideas in secret and and covertly connect with other people who feel the same way, then they never have to expose their ideas to criticism. They never have to expose their ideas to response. And that means that they can just keep building and building and building this repertoire of horrible ideas in their head. And it never gets challenged. It never gets broken down. It never gets pulled apart. I agree. There is something about hating the hate that kind of makes them all band together. And that's the wrong way about it. We need to start from the ground up so that people don't end up that way to begin with. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing about freedom of speech. It is kind of the ultimate test for bad ideas in that everyone gets to say what they think is true. Everyone gets to say the way they view the world. And it gets exposed to so many counter views, so many differing perspectives, that if it can't withstand that test, it's eventually going to fall into disuse because it has no value within this ecosystem of competing ideas. So yeah. Wow. That's how I think we should view things, honestly. Very passionate about it. Yeah. I mean You're very, I can just tell by like the way you're speaking about it. You just you just there's so much behind it. So much like will to like want that change. Of course. It's really like nice to like <laughs> even though it's like a horrible subject in a way. Yeah. It's really like just it is rousing. A difficult. <laughs> it's Ronda rousing. Yeah. Um, it is a difficult thing to be saying in this day and age, and that's yeah. why a lot of people don't, because then you get these ridiculous trolls that are trying to say, "Oh, well, you're just defending yeah. Nazis. You're just defending the alt right," and it's not about that it's not about any particular idea it's about freedom of speech as a whole this is why you need this is why it's not fair to criticize free speech advocates when they try to protect the rights of really despicable people to say what they have to say because it's not about them defending those particular people and their hateful ideas and their disgusting concepts it's about protecting the underlying freedom yeah. for everyone to say what they want to say. They have to uphold it on that end in order for us to have it on this end. Yeah. Because you, when you were talking about value, it has no value if you just start punching holes in it. Or if you just start punching holes in the faces of people you really, really disagree with. Well, you brought it back around. Remember we also saw that Shia LaBeouf punched that guy who said Hitler did nothing wrong which is the exact same thing because I saw the exact same response of I like, actually did see that. good for him yeah what a brave action it was really like what he said was really horrible yeah, it was very provocative and just not acceptable but that doesn't then mean that violence is acceptable because violence is different to words and even though words can hurt just as much if not more they're different things yeah and that's what we're trying to protect and i think ultimately or at least i hope that that conception of human liberty of liberal values will win out in the end i hope so we'll see tomorrow <laughs> 
the headline. Must Liberal values die. <laughs> World in shock. Yeah. My tummy is, make, is about to make the biggest growl a tummy has ever made. If you had to compare your tummy's growl to an animal growl, what would it be? It would be a bear growl. The bear's growl? They make sounds. Okay, maybe a lion then. A lion. A lioness's growl when its cubs are in danger. I can't do like that a was lion adorable. growl. <laughs> What's a bear growl? That was kind of like a dinosaur. What's like a... Um, I feel like a dinosaur's growl and a bear's growl might be similar though, to be honest. On the basis of no evidence, for well, sure. I can say what I think is true because those wow tying it back are the privileges i have as a person entitled to freedom of speech yes. i'm trying to tie it into what we were just talking <laughs> yes, about that's what i meant i thought that, was, that totally went without saying i thought you were going to be like as a person of quality <laughs> i think our listeners hi all five of you we Jim, Jenny, John, Ben. What Benjamin? What's all these like? The two Bens are very insecure about the fact that they have the same name. <laughs> they all have very similar names. They all begin with J, except for the two Bens. They're very upset with you right now. And maybe there's one nothing of the worse bins... than being hated by two Bens. That's an old Arabic proverb. Maybe one of the Bens is short for like a female name, like Benedetto. That's not a name. <laughs> you just made up a name. Yeah. Benedetto. Think of a Ben name for a woman. Ben. Benedict. Ben... No, that's That's not... a woman. That's a male name. How dare you. Ben... Hashtag. Hashtag. Sexist what? Stop hashtag everything. Hashtag I'm hungry. Hashtag food. Hashtag overcooked. Hashtag cook me. <laughs> I'm very confused, but I am also very hungry. So let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. Okay, so. We have a couple of things to say to you while we've still got you hostage. <laughs> because I hope you know that a very strong but somehow body safe form of glue has been seeping out of your earbuds as you've been listening. This is fucking horrendous. So do not even try to take them out as I read Run. this list of Run clubs. Now. Because you are going to hear them. <laughs> how many people have just turned off the podcast right then? How many people turned off the podcast when we started talking about how amazing our love was? Yeah. <laughs> That was pretty self-indulgent. <laughs> so yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode because we put our hearts and souls into it. We did. Please share it with anyone else you think may like it. Any of your little buddies, any of That's your so distant cousins on different continents, shoot them a quick, awkward Facebook message and say, hey, I've got this crazy new podcast that I'd love you to take a listen to. Promote, promote, promote. Yeah, we'd love you to be our vicarious <laughs> evangelists. You can find the podcast on iTunes and pretty much everywhere else where podcasts are served up fresh and steaming. Meaty. I'm so hungry. I've got food in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> or you can go to artatpodcast.com, which is spelled A-R-T-A-T podcast.com which currently redirects to our SoundCloud page, which is home base, which is where we primarily upload the podcasts. If you want them as soon as they get uploaded, that's where you can find them. Um, 
you can send any feedback or comments or commentary you may have. Really appreciate. We'd love if you could upload a four-hour response to every point we make in this podcast. (laughs) That would be ideal. You can send that to rtappodcast at gmail.com. Subject line, you guys are so crazy. Subject line, you guys are high. Subject line, food is coming, don't despair. Subject line, fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't send us that last email. Our fragile egos can't take yeah. it. We can't take the anonymous I'll cry, I'll internet cry. hate. And... Finally, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Ding! Because that really helps podcasts become visible to new people. And so, yeah, we're at the end. I thought it would never come. It's like global warming. Everyone says it's not happening until suddenly you find you're under five feet of water. Is that how global warming works? I have no idea. You're telling me you're not a climate scientist? I think maybe all the stuff I've read about the climate is fake. Sure. And the Earth is actually flat? No, the Earth is round, but the sun is not real. The sun is not real? It's like a hologram? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I've gone crazy. I need food. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I was being Mario. Let's go. You know, look at the beginning of uh, Mario Kart. When he's like about to get in his car, and he's like, let's go. Who and is he saying that to? He says it to all his buddies. Toad, Yoshi. The other guys. The other guys who we don't know the names the of. B-listers. Princess Peach. Why are they his buddies if he keeps hitting them with green and red I jowls? I don't know, but they're driving together away onto a vacation. Seems very unsafe to be leaving all those banana peels <coughs> on the track, Mario. Aren't these your friends? Yeah. Do you really want them to spin out and I die in a fiery cart crash? How dare you sneak that in as I was speaking. <laughs> so yeah, see you next episode, guys. Guys. See you next episode, guys. And girls and dolls and cats and dogs and babies and tarantulas and horses and flies and wombats. Wombats. Tarantulas? Do they have ears? Maybe. Do they have ears? Do you want to be the one to try and put the tiny little earphones into their tiny little spider ears? I would rather die than go anywhere near a spider. That's very unfortunate because we're about to eat tarantula burgers. No! Hairy, hairy burgers. I don't want, frankly, I don't want spider burgers. You can eat spider burgers all by yourself. And let I the people eat spider burgers. That's my campaign slogan. Hashtag let the people eat spider burgers. Hashtag, I hope you're not allergic to tarantula. Hashtag furry. Hashtag, no food should be furry. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. The music used during the intro and outro was kindly provided by Christopher from soundslikeanearful.com. See you next episode.